Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa's House Magazine. Today, I'm happy to welcome back Mike Sempervivi to the show. In this case, it's as the host of the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, because we're going to talk about the anniversary of the first Great American Bash, which was in July of 1985. We're going to go through the show match by match. We're going to talk about what was going on in the company before the show, what was going to be coming out of this show and leading to Starcade 85. We're also going to talk about the house show that occurred not in Charlotte at the same time as this show. We're also going to talk about various other things as we always do when Mike is on the show. Lots of 80s wrestling and of course Baltimore Washington television of the 1980s. I also want to make people know that the new podcast that we're doing is indeed out now. There have been two episodes you can find it over at whenitwascool.com. You can also find it in this feed. It's called The Plot. It's about both the spy genre in popular culture and also tangentially the heist genre in popular culture. The first episode was about the Mission Impossible TV show, and the second episode was about the 1951 comedy The Lavender Hill Mob starring Alec Guinness. Give that a listen if that sounds like it's something you might want to listen to. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Podcast. I'm happy to offer, as a respite from the current wrestling scene, a flashback because we have just passed the anniversary of the very first Great American Bash in 1985. And who better to talk about that than the host of the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, among his many other shows, the man, the myth, the man it's been too long since he's been on, Mike Sempervivi. How's it going, Mike? You mean I'm not a legend, too? I'm just a man and a myth? You'll get there eventually. See, you're still young. That's true. You'll get That's... there. You'll get... Yeah. When you when you get on the other side of the five, like me, then maybe you'll be a legend. <laughs> I got a couple more years, and I'm looking at my legendary gilded status. It, it, you know, it's fifty is uh, it's about gold. You know, it's about the the worked number we're going to be talking about today when it comes to a Crockett anniversary, the the fiftieth anniversary of my birth, drift in gold. Uh, well, uh, at least one can hope. Yeah, so the anniversary of the first Crockett show was a couple days ago, and so we were talking about, well, we had been talking about doing something for a while. This still is not the long-awaited Baltimore-Washington wrestling TV analysis. We will get to that eventually. I do have the TV guides from that era, so we will eventually do this show. I guess we'll hold it out as a grail for people to eventually do, but... uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about the the first bash. I as we've talked about on the show before, and I've talked about on uh, between the sheets. I had only started watching Crockett around this time. I don't even know if I had started watching before the bash or after the bash. I know that I don't have anything that I started taping until slightly later that later in the year than this. But obviously, you were full-blown in the middle of watching this. So what do you remember about the stuff in 85 leading up to the bash? For me, 
Magnum. That was one of the big things uh, because I was a big Magnum TA fan. And his win over Kamala, I mean, it was such a... It was such a, a, a cool thing, and, and we'll get to, you know, more of why a little later on. But obviously, Magnum's ascension up the ranks, winning the U.S. title from Wahoo, doing what Barry Windham was going to be the next guy to do, which was become the next big baby face to take over the territory. Well, at least behind Dusty. You know, D- Dusty's man, his handpicked guy, is his tag team member in America's team, you know, that, that Magnum was the guy. And obviously Dusty too, the Dusty Tully feud and having baby doll. It was, it was like out of the old West, you know, two Texans battling it out. And then, you know, you got the woman who's always getting involved. And then Dusty, he finally has a chance. He finally has a chance to, to get this woman and and make an, an honest woman out of her if he can just defeat Tully Blanchard, if he can just overcome all of this criminal element that surrounds Tully Blanchard and his cheating ways and his, his nefarious friends like Wahoo McDaniel that had been driving Dusty nuts, you know, and everybody nuts throughout the first half of the year. You know, those were the things that, that really stood out to me as well as, of course, the Road Warriors. And the Road Warriors and the Russians going at it. And the Road Warriors just having a 1985, like, no one could believe. You know, obviously Hulk Hogan and WrestleMania and Mr. T. And all the pomp and circumstance that surrounded the WWF. All well-deserved. All great marketing come to a a beautiful point. (laughs) And they had network support and all that sort of other good stuff. But outside of there... The Road Warriors were one of the biggest stories of 1985. And here come the AWA World Tag Team Champions in looking like they do, being who they are, and facing off against the Russians. And it was wild to see these bad guys essentially on AWA TV for the most part. And obviously by then they were baby faces, but they were still looked at as these maniacs. And they're coming into Crockett, and it's like, have they met their match? They're defending America against the, the evil Russians. And those were the biggest things to me leading into it. There's obviously Jimmy Valiant and Buzz Tyler and Paul Jones's army. And, and obviously the ascension of Buddy Landell that we're going to talk about. But, you know, the main matches on the show, Dusty Tully, Magnum and the Road Warriors. That was really the biggest thing for me. And there's a little matter of... Uh... Rick Flair and Nikita Koloff. Yeah. Yep. And when, that when Nikita to some committed a violent heel act to others, perhaps a babyface act, by uh giving the Russian sickle to David Crockett during an interview. A community service, one might say, doing something like that. Um and <laughs> taking him out of the picture. And uh, letting Bob or Tony, I can't remember who it was that took over for David Crockett when he was laid out there uh, (laughs) by Nikita Koloff. And that was, you know, that was really cool, too, because obviously back in the day we had a lot more lead up and build time before we got to the, the big event. 
So this was something, even though the magazines were two months behind, you know, they had enough time to really build towards this show and hype up the fact that this evil Russian who was training in the dungeons and we saw all the lead up of Nikita Koloff and Ivan Koloff working him in this in this dark area and he's taking orders from the Kremlin and you got the 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 after magazines, the Western magazines all writing about it, you know, about Mother Russia and he doesn't want to disappoint. All that stuff was hyped up so well. And Rick Flair, and this is a sidebar, is such an interesting character in 1985 because he's such a baby face in the Carolinas and he is such a reviled heel everywhere else. But even in Crockett, his list of opponents as world champion, he was presented better. And obviously Hulk Hogan and how he was presented a little bit of a separate story. But you look at how Ric Flair was treated by Crockett as Yes, he's the most popular guy here, but guess what? Dusty still wants to face him. Magnum's still the U.S. champion. He wants to get a shot at him. So even though Flair's dealing with Landell, he's dealing with Tully, he's dealing with Wahoo, he's dealing with all these other evil characters like Nikita Koloff, he's still open season for anybody to come wrestle. And I thought that was a really great part of that Flair character in 85. Well, this is also, we've also um, got the very beginning of the TBS show, because this is in July, and they haven't been on TBS that long at this point, and you're starting to get the weird parallel universe thing where Flair's feuds on syndicated TV in the Carolinas aren't necessarily the same as his feuds on TBS, and TBS allowed him to be a little more heelish than he was being in the Carolinas at this point. Absolutely. Because there he was talking to everybody, and they were, at the time, they were running scrolls for everybody else. When they went to that uh, Dynamics music, and they Tony Schiavone started kicking in and talking about where the NWA was going, he talked about going to Portland and what they had going on up there and some of the wrestlers that would be appearing there. And in Talladega. And in Daytona and all of these other places where Ric Flair was going to be going and defending his title as a bad guy against whoever it was he was going to be facing. And even though he was able to straddle the line on on WTBS by playing to the women, playing to the fans, you know, dropping names that he knew were going to get reactions, he could still yell at Dusty Rhodes. He could still yell at Magnum TA. He could still yell at whoever it was, Dick Slater, Buzz Sawyer, whoever it happened to be on the, on the babyface side of the ledger, and people would still be okay with it because, yeah, that's Ric Flair doing that, but for the Carolina fans, that's just our cocky champion who is on our side now and is willing to defend it against anybody because that's the type of man he is. But like you mentioned, he was able to turn up the volume a little bit more and be a little more curt and get in a couple more jabs on TBS. Well, it's sort of the extension of the thing where you would see Flair on other people. I mean, now that we've seen other people's TV from the same time, you know, where he goes in and he's kind of humble and he's putting over the local guy, but then he becomes more and more Flair-like. You know, I mean, the classic example is, you know, the episode of Memphis TV with Lawler, where he starts out, he's 
kind of nice and being polite. And, you know, by the end, he's, you know, crazy heel Ric Flair. But, you know, he could sort of do that when, certainly, you know, like when he would go to Mid-South and, you know, basically be a pot stirrer, you know, as he was, you know, as he would be later in the year with the famous DiBiase angle, where it's just kind of like, hey, I'm the world champion, you know, uh, I'll wrestle whoever the champion is here in this area. You guys decided amongst yourselves, it's no concern of mine. And so he just is sort of an agent of chaos more than anything. Absolutely. And the more time he had to be would determine the time of the story. And that's why when he was on WTBS a few years earlier, he may have a couple weeks to build into this match with Butch Reed, Bruce Reed, you know, and have a couple of weeks walking in there the first week, being a little bit more humble being a little bit more like Gordon, huh? Ah, you feeling good today? I'm feeling good too. And then the devolving of Flair over several weeks as these these baby faces that he was kind of trying to put to the side, you know, become a little bit more of a thorn, you know. And I always loved seeing that. And and most weeks, like when it happened with Lawler in Memphis, you have to see that all in the span of one interview for the most part or one show, which he was always able to do in a great way. So. You know, Flair was really, really one of the best at that. You know, in fact, he maybe may have been the best at that. You know, certainly of, of the era we're talking about, he was just supreme doing that sort of thing. Yeah. So the show itself takes place on July 6th in Charlotte Memorial Coliseum. So this is, of course, an, an outdoor show when we'll get to this in a second. But, you know, it starts in the afternoon. Uh, and goes th- into the evening. Um, attendance is estimated at around twenty-seven thousand. So, you know, for a minor league park, that's pretty darn good and close to capacity, if not, you know, n- total no vacancy. Oh, absolutely. And they have been dipping their toes in the water on this sort of thing for oh, it's a couple of years now. At this point, you saw it in nineteen eighty-three with Steamboat and Youngblood, and that gave them the idea to do more shows, you know, like The Road to Greensboro with Slaughter and Kernoodle. And then later on, it was in that year, I'm trying to think, because they had the U.S. title tournament, which obviously led into Starcade. Well, they had the Starcade in 83, and then in 84, you had the Boogeyman Jam, and they started looking at these quarterly shows, and they started looking at that plan, and it was working. The Starcades were working. The ideas were working. So here's just another one. And look at WrestleMania. And that was the other, you know, small, it's a geeky thing that we like, you know, where it's like, it's amazing that fans of WTBS, who in January of 1985, if you were just a new wrestling fan and you were watching Bob Roop, or whoever in in 84 and then you see the wwf come on there and you see the wwf promoted for a while and then you see the nwa promoted we had wrestlemania and the great american bash promoted on the same channel within the span of a couple of months and it's just it's amazing it's just amazing to me that 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 whole scenario and situation happened which again makes it even extra amazing about the road warriors you know, but we'll get to them later on. But yeah, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Talking, 
not talking about that, but the outdoor shows and, and having these type of, of, of tent pole events and having these big type of events. And they had the Charlotte Orioles. You have the park. It's your it's your building in your town. And they just had the right formula. You know, Paul Jones and Jimmy Valiant hadn't gotten boring yet. Jimmy Valiant was still a legend for everybody. You had these evil Russians uh, facing off against these invaders and the road warriors who fans had kind of seen before. But if they hadn't seen them and, you know, they're what they had been doing outside of the the short time they made a quick appearance in Crockett in 84. I mean, their legend had grown to a ridiculous proportion. So everything was perfect, including the main event you know, match between Dusty and Tully that had all of that buildup including, you know, over a year of Tully Blanchard just being a bastard in Mid-Atlantic and getting people to want to see him get his ass kicked. And that's the crazy part about Tully, and that's the one thing I love about doing the Mid-Atlantic podcast, especially, you know, focusing on the dusty era of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling is how great Tully Blanchard was and how important Tully Blanchard was to being the glue to get them through 1984 where they could even have a 1985 that would lead to better things later on. Yeah. People who haven't watched like 84 TV just may not appreciate sort of how omnipresent Tully was at that point to the, you know, even, you know, doing commentary. It was just, he was, he was just, it's, it, he was just everywhere. Yeah. And they had nothing else, <laughs> and for you because and that's the thing is, um, did people get tired of Tully? Yes, you know, week in and week out and all the time. Yeah, I, I'm sure some of them did, but at the time, even though on paper you look and you go, man, Gary Hart, Ernie Ladd, this person, that person, in execution, it was just a, a whole area in flux with a Booker who was changing things, who wasn't there all the time. He was traveling. So all these things are getting implemented. We're phasing people out. We're bringing new people on. But it was severe growing pains when at the top of the lineup, you got Ivan Koloff and Angelo Mosca Jr. because Ric Flair is always out of town. And did Dick Slater have that type of appeal? You know, unfortunately for him, no. They lost how many people to the WWF? Ricky Steamboat got forced out the door. You know, and was downplayed throughout 1984. Yes, he had the match with Tully Blanchard, but, you know, things really tilted for him. You know, uh, nationally, they didn't. You know, when you still saw the Meadowlands hyping a, a Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat match, that was a big deal. But outside of that, he was de-emphasized as the year went on and didn't have the same juice by the end of the year. Plus, he had been there at that point for, what, seven, eight years you know, some of that newness was off, and it was it was certainly a weird time. But Blanchard being there every week, trying to add some color to Johnny Weaver doing color on Worldwide Wrestling, and being there as a thorn in Bob Cottle's side, and giving him somebody to banter with and have a little bit of fun with as he's holding the television title for all that time. I mean, it was great because as great as Tully, you know, Dory Funk Jr. is in the ring. You know, who who would you rather watch at that point in 1985 yeah. or 84? Definitely. So uh, something that people often forget about this show, they attribute it much more to 1986, is there was a concert before the show. There was a, there was a David Allen Coe concert 
which included uh, all the baby faces coming out and singing along. And, you know, uh, people who have people who listen to my pod with Jimmy Valiant knows the man made some records, and you know he went out and sang with David Allen Coe before the show. Raspy, <laughs> raspy voice and all, selling the angle. That's I love it, and that's you know that's one. Hey, we were promised fireworks. We were promised skydivers. And we were promised a concert by David Allen Coe. We got all of those things. Thank you, Sandy Scott, who very excitedly ran onto the set one week uh, to tell us about all this stuff that was going to be taking place when they initially announced the Great American Bash taking place. So, yeah. And David Allen Coe, obviously, wrestling fan, weird dude, <laughs> um, liked gimmicks as much as the boys did, surely. Um, surely, I, more. More than that, apparently, uh, at times with David Allen Coe. But a a, a outlaw uh, in the country music business, hanging out with a bunch of outlaws in the sports entertainment field, it, it really was, in a lot of ways, it's one of those natural matchups. <laughs> you know, it really, really is. Certainly probably went over better than the concert that we saw in Philadelphia a year later, which I think was Joe Ely and Delbert McClinton. Uh, I believe we did not stay for the concert, as you might imagine, but I believe my, my parents had had enough by that point. And so d- even though they were country music fans, we're not going to sit through however long of an hour in concert in Philadelphia and then have the hour drive home. So it may have been a good, may have been a good concert, but don't know. Well, that but- was like my, my dad. My dad was not a country music fan. I mean, he had a pair of cowboy boots, but he was like 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, so I could see... During the Urban Cowboy years, that's how I, he had one of those. And he, I think he had one of those Marlboro Man jackets, too, when he got cold outside. He could act like he was doing something when he was pushing around the snowblower in D.C. But <laughs> it's, you know, w- when they announced it initially for RFK, it was David Allen Coe and Jesse Coulter, who I guess he was married to or going out with at the time. And I just remember, I mean, my father was... He could not believe it, like David Allen Coe, because if you look at David Allen Coe's category of songs, he's got some controversial lyrics and titles to songs. And my father is thinking, wait a second, you're bringing David Allen Coe into Washington, the middle of Washington, D.C., southeast Washington, D.C., David Allen Coe, really? All right. We're not messing with that. And so I think, you know, it's an, it's listed, I believe, as Joe Ely and Jesse Coulter. But I honestly thought it ended up being Delbert McClinton. I, I think it was Delbert McClinton and Jesse Coulter. Thing is, I couldn't tell you because I don't remember any of it. <laughs> you know, when we got in there, we didn't stay for it. We were out of there. So... You know, years later, Keith Lipinski and I on a, a Parasu Power Hour radio show interviewed Dusty Rhodes, and I asked him that question, like, really? You know, honestly, when you went through the plans for this, do you ever think about adding anybody else, you know, out of the realm of country music? And it's just like, because, like, David Allen Coe playing Washington, D.C., and he just, you know, that's in the past, baby. We we, we ain't going to talk about that. That's in the past. And he just, we we moved on to something else, but... Yeah, you know, some, you know, maybe market, more market-specific artists, uh, more popular market-specific artists. Eh, you know, that's something they, they, they could have learned from. Uh, well, they definitely 
learned to not run stadiums as much anymore after that, which uh, for all the money they lost there, especially in Cincinnati and places like that, was a good idea. Well, I mean, if the urban legend is true, you know, Vern booked Waylon Jennings to play Russell Rock instead of hometown hero Prince Rogers Nelson. So just imagine what Prince playing at Russell Rock would have been like. In 86? Holy Moses. I mean, the mix of the crowd for that. Do you know how many women, how many girls would have been there post-Purple Rain Prince? What it would have been like, what it would have sounded like? And what would those people have done when the wrestling came on? And when would you have that concert? Would you have it before or would you have it after? I'm not sure which would be the better idea. Yeah, I think after would have been better because, hell, you probably could have actually uh, sold double admission. You could have had you could have had wrestling in the afternoon, you know, say if you want to stay, stay and then, you know, sell more tickets to the people that just want to see Prince that night. <laughs> Actually, a day night double header of wrestling in a concert like that might, might not be the worst idea. OK, how many of you diehards want to pay one price? You can stay in here for all of it. The rest of you. You know, you're, you're coming for the wrestling. You want to stay for this? No? All right, get out. We're, we're going to sell your spot and get in here, everybody else. Yeah, maybe the Cowboys should have done that for the first Crockett Cup. Maybe it would have maybe <laughs> it would have, would have helped the afternoon attendance a little. You know, great in, in theory. Uh, you know, great on paper. Probably should have known it was going to not work out the way they wanted it to and Again, that's going to be that's a story for a different show as well, too, because all the lead up that went into that is the UWF switched over from Mid-South and everything that took place there was such a unique time. It really was. Well, I was going to say for people who are interested, I know you did a Crockett Cup episode and I did the Crockett Cup episode of BTS. So you can you can between the two of us, you can hear probably us talk for like three or four hours about the Crockett Cup on different podcasts. Yeah, you know what? I think that one Crockett Cup episode we did may be three or four hours. It was about as close to a BTS as you can get. Well, there's there's a lot to talk about with that Crockett Cup. And it's like, in, and you know, those podcasts were longer than the actual commercial tape. And speaking of commercial tapes, we'll talk about that uh, involving the bash uh, a little later. But the first match on the show, Nature Boy Buddy Landell and Cowboy Ron Bass. Go to a 20-minute draw. Cowboy Ron Bass, long-time uh, hired hand of James J. Dillon, had just turned face because Dillon was enamored with his new protege and left the cowboy out in the cold. Yes, he did. And that was only, oh, man, mere weeks after. Ron Bass was standing there alongside J.J. and Buddy. Talking about J.J., look, man, I have given you five championships. I've given you the Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight title, given you Mid-Atlantic Tag titles, gave you the U.S. Tag titles, gave you the Southern Heavyweight title, gave you the Florida title. This kid hasn't given you anything, you know, besides some flash. And, and there's nothing going on here. Buddy Landell continued to insult him. They get into it. The choice is, ends up being made. J.J. Dillon's rocking with Buddy Landell, who by this point 
some people may not know, has already had matches with Ric Flair as part of Ric Flair's incredibly interesting 1985. Buddy Landell got over when he came back very quickly, and he was very strong. And once that happened, any loose affiliation J.J. had with Tully was, was quietly kind of pulled away for the moment. Black Bart kind of jettisoned aside, even though he never, still technically for a while, was under the employ of J.J. Dillon. But that was it. From here on, it was going to be the J.J. and Buddy show, and his ascension up the ranks was something else. But, my God, when you see him out there, it's it's a reminder of how great Buddy Landell got in such a short amount of time and how confident he was in himself and how good he was working with everybody, whether it be the enhancement guy with the least amount of experience or a guy like Ron Bass where they put him out there and they would have, you know, good stuff. Was this match one of them? Eh, it was a 20-minute draw. It was made to be that way to continue things on and to get everybody warmed up in the crowd. But Buddy Landell and Ron Bass would both have better matches with each other after this and were far better than what they showed here, especially on the short bit you see on WI tape. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because they really... You know they they sort of interact uh, for a little while longer, but they're soon split off into other feuds because Landell's going to feud with Terry Taylor and Ron Bass is going to feud with Black Bart. So even though this was sort of the split between the man, you know, the managers to uh, two guys, you know, it really doesn't last that long on the whole. No. I mean, I mean, you know, this is not this is not a feud that's going to last six months until Starcade. You know, they're going to have, a lot of these feuds. You know, people on the show, you know, are not who they're feuding with by the time we get to Starcade. And you know, by the time we get to you know August September, Dusty's lining up all the Starcade feuds, and most of these, some of these are kind of blowoffs in a way. And you know, before they moved on to something else. Absolutely. I mean, it was the end for some of this stuff even if you didn't really know it then because Landell and Bass, obviously, you know, it just started. So you didn't really know exactly what was going to take place, but buddy Landell was, you know, outplaying his place in the lineup for sure. And he was going to be up there very quickly. And like you mentioned, it ends up leading to the national title match with Terry Taylor, but the Andersons and Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater, you know, we didn't realize at the time, but that was pretty much the end of the Georgia thing. <laughs> you know, in hindsight, we know that's the case. And soon we're going to see the Midnight Express in, and soon we're going to see Pez Watley in more and, and guys like that be here more on a regular basis who were, who were down working in Atlanta. But this is pretty much it. You know, the, the same kind of goes for Paul Jones's army at what was thought at the time, kind of battling with Valiant and Tyler and Fernandez and Houston and those guys, they were working with each other for so long. It did kind of feel like that was going to be the blow off for them, except for the fact that Jimmy Valiant, and Paul Jones never really ever got blown off. Well, it's funny that, that Valiant and Jones, I mean, he, Jimmy gets the win here and then they kind of push the pause button for like six months and everybody does something else. Paul Jones has like separate, you know, we're going to see, 
you know, what happens with his guys in the six-man. But, you know, he's kind of got his own individual feud with each of his guys. And Jimmy Valiant's going to be put with put with the Midnights for six months until they rekindle the Jones stuff at the beginning of the year. So it was almost like it. We're, it's not over. It's just kind of in a lull, which kind of is good because can you imagine another six months of the Valiant Jones feud as long as it lasted anyway with, you know, it's like certainly people would have been tired a year and a half later by the time you got to Starcade. You would think, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that they wouldn't have done it. Uh, because they, I mean, they, they would always go back to it. It's, it's in some ways, it's almost, it's almost jarring when you see Jimmy Valiant in there with Tully Blanchard, because, you know, they had the deal with, with, with Blanchard and, and Valiant for a short period of time. Was that 84? That may have been 84, uh, you know, towards, but like Valiant in the midnights, like it just, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> it doesn't look right. It was okay when it was going on. It was weird, you know, with the Midnight Express coming in, you know, because not having access to WTBS, at least not regularly. So, like, the Midnight Express kind of coming in, and they're in the mix, and it's like, it's Jimmy Valiant, and then all of a sudden it's Ronnie Garvin as Miss Atlanta Lively. It was, you know, as a little kid, there was, like, there were pieces together, I guess, because of football and everything else I was doing at the time, uh, the games I had to play on Saturdays that there were parts that I must have missed, but that was one of those ones that was hard to put together. And even looking back now, you know, Jimmy Valiant and Ivan Koloff, you know, that that feud made sense. Uh, but almost every other Jimmy Valiant feud has been through a manager, whether it was Gary Hart or Sir Oliver Humperdinck or Paul Jones. So when you don't see him in there with one of those guys, whether it be, Joe LaDuke or One Man Gang or Shaska Watley or The Baron, it, it, to me, it's actually kind of weird. And it, it just, for some reason, doesn't feel right. Well, Unlike the, Tyler, who never felt right in anything for me. Well, the funny thing with, like, you look at the Valiant feud, that it goes from, you know, first it's, you know, it's Jimmy Valiant and Rocky King. And, okay, we're going to maybe elevate Rocky King up a little. And then suddenly it's Jimmy Valiant and Billy Graham, you know, the new return tie-dye Billy Graham. And then it's Jimmy Valiant and Miss Atlanta Lively. So it's like, it's not even like it's a, it's a, like a single thing all the way through. It's kind of like there's a bunch of weird stops and starts, and I don't know if that was always the plan. Or because it, it sort of seems like, He's going through guys because, like, they're not really getting the job done. And it's like, you know, until you get to Ron Garvin. But, you know, it's, I mean, you know, certainly Jimmy Valiant and Billy Graham makes a lot more sense as a team than Jimmy Valiant and Miss Atlanta Lively. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah to that. And you look at like where, I mean, there were always a lot of circumstances leading into Starcade where I always wonder, like Ronnie Garvin '85, Ronnie Garvin '86. Like, I always wonder what you know, what 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 were the other plans or ideas that could have been sketched out for Garvin in '86? There's obviously Ric Flair. There's some other things there, but it's like, or even Nikita Koloff, depending on you know where you think Magnum was going to be on the show. If it's facing Flair, then, well, Ronnie Garvin and Nikita makes sense because they had stuff going on. 
at that time. And they kind of interwove those stories together. So, but it's, you know, he had, it always seemed to be, there was always something snake bit about him. Same thing with Wahoo McDaniel, because like Wahoo McDaniel in 85 with, with superstar Graham. And it's like, what were in 84, what was this supposed to be? You know, and obviously there was Barry Windham and all that sort of stuff, but it's like that match was so bad. It was between two heels. It was short and it didn't make any sense. And it's like, you know, what was really supposed to happen there? Because, you know, Wahoo never really had to me that great of a Starcade. He had the strap match with Rude, but he never had, you know, that kind of moment. Uh, and, and uh, you know, on the flip side, when it came to Ronnie Garvin, it was kind of the same way. Obviously, he had the, the match with Ric Flair in 88, so things changed, you know, after this. But in 85 and 86, it always just felt like, to me, he was lower in position than how he was presented to me on TV. But then again, being from Baltimore, we were parcel towards Ronnie Garvin. Yeah. And you know, with Wahoo, you had the, I mean, this may have been built up on TBS and I didn't see it, but like the whole, or, uh, the whole Wahoo and Billy Jack versus the Andersons. It's like, you know, where's that come from? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, was this something that was going on in Florida that I didn't know about? And it's like, I understand the whole logic of, under, of you know, unifying these two titles with similar names, but it's just kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a match on the card. You know, it's yeah, like, you know, it's like, you know, Florida, you know, at that time, Wahoo's, you know, had left, you know, not long after you know, uh, the, the Dusty beating Tully, uh, he was out of there in, in May, I guess it was, uh, of 85. So he's down in Florida at that time. So he's booking. He's got Billy Jack. There's obviously going to be, you know, players, you know, guys coming in from different places as, as it had been for the past couple of years to make Starcade a bigger card. But I, I'm trying to think, what was it, maybe twice? I'm trying to remember how many times they really weren't on they didn't make the trip up to Atlanta for TV, except for maybe once or twice to do that uh, whole champions, uh, superstars on the Superstation championship challenge deal. You know, it was very, they really, in fact, it, it, uh, maybe one appearance on Mid-Atlantic and Worldwide, one taping there, and maybe one or two times on Atlanta TV, that was it. Yeah. And speaking of the Andersons, Back to the bash, we have a national tag team match where it's the Andersons versus Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater. Now, again, as someone who has just started watching Crockett, I you know I was certainly intrigued by Buzz Sawyer, probably mainly because of the boots. But it's like you know, as I learned, as I would learn later, you could call this you know the tag match with guys you do not mess with. And it's like, and it's not that great a match because, you know, as I would learn later, it's kind of the, yeah, it's the end of Buzz and, and Dick and Crockett and Sawyer hadn't even, you know, Slater was kind of in the mix and, you know, Brett's not here. Brett's on the other show that we'll talk about eventually, but it's just kind of like, and then you have a weird, like, finish with a kick out at three that makes it look like it's going to go somewhere, but it doesn't. Probably because he wasn't supposed to kick out at three. 
But that's, you know, that, that was buzz, I, if I'm not mistaken. Was it not that missed the elbow drop and then Ole got the pin? Yeah. It, so it's like, you know, was it just buzz being buzz? Was it, you know, did Ole, was Ole just, Ole didn't give a shit. But it's, you know, it's probably just try to save some face there to, to say that they had something on the way out the door to Mid-South. But obviously Jim Crockett did not like Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater, regardless of, who liked Dick Slater, and I'm sure Dusty did, and there were other people there that did. But as you mentioned, he, you know, he and Steamboat were floundering at the beginning of the year. You know, they kind of became the Americans to help out Don Cronoodle and trying to gain some revenge on the Russians and get his flag back. And de-emphasize as time went on, sent down to Georgia, it was Dusty's gorilla, and it was down there with him and you know Dick. You already had Dusty doing Dusty. You didn't need Dick in there doing Dusty as well, too, even though, you know, he was good at it and he was entertaining. You know, it was another it was babyface Dick Slater who, who who felt a lot like Dusty sometimes with a Terry Funk promo. So, you know, Sawyer and Slater out of there, although I will say one of my favorite matches of all time, because I saw it as a little kid and it was burned into my mind, is still that. Ricky Steamboat, Dusty Rhodes, uh, Dick Slater, uh, six-man match, uh, bunkhouse match against Tully, Black Bart, and Ron Bass with Magnum TA and JJ at ringside. Still one of my favorite moments of all time. And Dick Slater, forever a hero to come out with that oversized novelty foam hat on. Loved that. Yeah, Slater, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, you could. You could do many pods about various things about Dick Slater. It's like... Heel Dick Slater, babyface Dick Slater, guy you don't mess with Dick Slater. It's, but, you know, it's, he's one of those guys that it's just, you know, that for all his success, you know, now it's almost like he's kind of fallen through the cracks in a way. You know, probably unless, you know, you're from Florida or like maybe you're from Mid-South. You know, he's just, and maybe because he held on for so long and was kind of a, sh- you know, I, I think you like me on paper, you know, when they introduced the hardliners, we're like, oh, this is going to be good. Yeah. But then it's kind of like long piss, prime Dick Slater, Murdoch, you never know what Murdoch you're going to get. And, you know, it was just kind of odd. But on paper, or like in 1977, boy, that would have been a fun team to watch. Yeah, and it's like, you know, they – for somebody that's new – for somebody that knew them, it was like, you know, cool. Like there was a believability factor of these guys can kick your ass. Like you knew no matter where they were, like as a wrestling, as a wrestling fan, like uh, do I really want to see the hardliners as opposed to – the Steiners or this or this or this, eh, they're lower down on the list. But for like a newer fan who had no idea the history of these guys, they didn't care, <laughs> you know? And unfortunately, as time goes on, you know, Greg Valentine, Dick Slater, Dick Murdoch, Don Morocco, Jerry Stubbs, um, you know, Arn Anderson's a different story. But, you know, there was a time I worried about him, but maybe, he, look, Ole Anderson even, you know, for all of the massive successes business-wise and all that stuff that Ole Anderson had, look at the light that he is shown in right now and look at the, 
you know, how they paint the picture of Ole Anderson. And he's one of those guys that is going to slip through the cracks. And there's going to be a lot of those guys like that. Wahoo, unfortunately, is seems like he's going to be one of those guys. You know, as time goes on, people really aren't going to understand how and why these guys were so good or so dangerous or so believable or how, you know, their names stood up to the test of time for so long, even though they faded out now. Definitely. Now, here we have the weird, uh, could you call this a war tag team tribute match in 1985? <laughs> we have we have Buzz Sawyer, um, I mean, Avalanche Buzz Tyler, Manny Fernandez, and young Sam Houston beating Abdullah, the Barbarian, and still Karate Man, superstar Billy Graham. Oddly enough, you know, this ends up with the Sam Houston getting the upset over Billy Graham, which is going to lead to Billy Graham's babyface turn. Um, if you watch the PWI tape, you almost miss the finish because of all the, what I guess we would, I guess this is a JCP everybody moment where they're, they're filming all the other guys and you almost miss the pinfall because Sam Houston does a small package that you kind of see behind you know, Manny fighting with the Barbarian, I think. But, again, this is Dusty trying to elevate Sam Houston a little and start Billy Graham's babyface turn. Yeah, and one little swoop right there, and that was a good thing because Sam Houston, obviously, with the boots and with, again, he he was always, even if you didn't know who he was and we didn't know at the time that he was related to Jake Roberts and he was Grizzly Smith's kid. I guess if you were in the newsletters, you did. But most of us as little kids had absolutely no idea that. But you just knew there was something special about him because he came in with plain boots and blue tights and whatever it was at first. And then you see this little skinny kid, you know, who gets beat a lot, you know, but he hangs in there and he's tough and he gets a little bit more week after week and then gets the new gear. And now he's teaming up with Manny Fernandez and Buzz Tyler, who's technically your your mid-Atlantic heavyweight champion, Avalanche Buzz Tyler is. And Manny Fernandez, one of Dusty Rhodes' favorites, who always happens to be around, you know, when you need him to be. He could be your world tag team champion. Or he could be in there teaming with Jimmy Valiant fighting off Paul Jones's army, which is exactly what he was doing here with Billy Graham, who, thank God, the change goes back to being psychedelic Billy not long after this because, boy, was that long in the tooth even then for, for Billy Graham to be doing that karate gimmick. It was it was death, even though, really, on paper, this is Paul Jones's strongest army, uh, one could argue. This, this faction that he had here, the Barbarian who comes in with Magnum TA around that same time. And you could see that they wanted to push those guys. And if you watch late 84 into early 85 TV, Barbarian and Magnum are real close together. And they are keeping Barbarian seemingly strong on the outside for Magnum. And obviously to become a threat later on too, you know, Dusty wanted to have his monster and that looked like the Barbarian. Obviously, it didn't quite work out that way. But Barbarian at this time was still really, really strong. Abdullah the Butcher, you could have, look, I swore, and I still to this day, I still thought that he was going to be the guy that Magnum would have faced, you know, for the U.S. heavyweight title. Why he decided not, you know, but maybe, maybe that wasn't going to be the case. Maybe he was always bringing in Kamala. But it always interested me that, Abdullah ended up in this match 
you know, where Paul Jones could have gotten anybody to be in the match, including himself. And Kamala gets brought in on relatively short notice, two, three weeks, maybe two weeks, if that. And now he's in the match with Magnum when Abdullah has been the one hurting Dusty, being led uh, by Tully Blanchard as Paul Jones handed him over to him and including being involved in messing with Magnum leading into this. Yeah, there's just, like we were talking about, there's a lot of weird, I don't know if you'd say stops and starts or left-hand turns around this time. And so, like you were saying, you know, Abdullah is kind of being shared by Tully and Paul Jones. Like, Paul Jones had given Abdullah to, to Tully to sort of use as his henchman. There's a great promo from the week after the bash that I was watching earlier on Mid-Atlantic TV where Tully's complaining about losing Baby Doll and et cetera, et cetera. We'll get to that later. But he's standing behind Abdullah. So you so you can't hear – you can't see Tully while he's talking. It's a very funny visual. Just like, <laughs> just like around the same time, because they're in the baseball stadium, there's a great promo that – I've posted a couple times online of Paul Jones standing on Abdullah, like standing on his stomach on like on a home plate while he's doing the interview. It's very, it's very fun. Yeah. Again, you know, some Abby does not oftentimes get a lot of credit for, for subtle comedy because it doesn't really work the gimmick all that well, but when he does it, sometimes he's really funny doing it because you're not expecting it. And there's some, yeah, like there's some surprise stuff. If you were to go back and watch Peacock or the network, however anybody is ingesting uh, their their Mid Atlantic at that from that time, some of the Abdullah Barbarian stupid interplay as Paul Jones is talking, where like they poke each other and it turns into punches. Or they're looking at something to eat, and then it's, it's just stupid, just stupid little things on Mid Atlantic and worldwide that are really again, and same thing with WTBS as well at World Championship Wrestling that are like you mentioned are really subtly funny, and and are, are you know with you have a scary weirdo monster like that to add a little levity to the proceedings. I thought you know is it's always good, and I'll mention this here. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this or not, but uh, we could have had a different member of Paul Jones's army here. Um, when I did a podcast last year with Jeff Van Camp, who was the second Lord Humongous, the Continental Mid-South Lord Humongous, um, he said that when he went to Mid-South after leaving Continental in, around this time in 85 – he could have gone to Crockett. He had the offer to go to Crockett or go to Mid-South. So presumably, had he gone to Crockett, he probably would have been a member of Paul Jones's army. And you wonder where you would have slotted Humongous into that late 1985 lineup. Well, it's possible if it's – so he would have came in – when would he have come in then? When did he go into Mid-South? Mid- I want to say like June, July. So right around, I mean, he probably would have, you know, he may have debuted right before this or he may have debuted right after this because, you know, you've got a lot of guys debuting after the bash as Dusty starts to freshen up the talent. 
So, you know, we could have think you know, we ended up in mid south, we ended up with Nord and Humongous as a team. Maybe we would have ended up with Conga and Humongous as a team. So maybe that's, maybe yeah. you maybe you don't need Abdullah. That's what I'm thinking too. It would make sense that it's Barbarian and Van Camp together as humongous or whatever the the gimmick is going to be, that would make the most sense, especially as you've already, the wheels were already in motion to bring the Road Warriors in, and you had a team in the Russians that, as long as Ivan was in the ring with any combination of Crusher and Nikita, you had a veteran there that could go against both baby faces and heels. So... That would make sense. Plus, the other thing it would do is, with the Rock and Roll Express about to have their ascension coming up later on in later on this month, right? And, yeah. and, you know, and into August, they would be. I don't want to say the perfect opponents for the Rock and Rolls to 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 sit there and, and get killed by for most of the match and cry out to and try to help bring along, you know, these two young guys and still get the victory. That would make a whole lot of sense to me, a whole lot. You know, and then you figure, you know, again, there's so many different permutations, but, you know, we ended up with the Barbarian and Billy Graham having that arm wrestling match at Starcade, and then you had Manny versus Abdullah in the Sombrero match. It's like, yeah, you could easily, I mean, you could have made that a tag match. You know, you could, it could have been Manny and Superstar versus the Barbarian and Humongous, or still do those two singles matches, or or what. But yeah, it really would have been fun seeing Humongous in, on Crockett TV around that time. Because, yeah, I mean, he's still, he's, I mean, he's getting better in the gimmick, you know, and it certainly worked, you know, well in Mid-South, but it probably would have worked well in Crockett, too, at that time. Plus, even though he's a freak type of character... He still would, he would have still made Paul Jones' army that much better and that much stronger and that much more believable, and it wouldn't have atrophied the way that it did if you had held on to. And and look, obviously, as we get to the end of '85, as we go into '86, there is a philosophy to give Paul Jones, by his own admission, a European army, um, which, in a new look. And all that sort of stuff, and that's a story for another day, too. So maybe it wouldn't have mattered, but at least at this time, Superstar Billy Graham's about to be a babyface, right? You got Abdullah, you got Conga, you have Abdullah, but Abdullah's going to be gone. So your your main guys are Conga the Barbarian at that point would be humongous. That's still a threat. You know, unfortunately, you know, and Baron Von Raschke in 86, because of his relationship with Paul Jones, I could see him being in there. But, like, would you have had to do the turn with Pez necessarily if Humongous is hot and feuding with Valiant or whatever? Again, you have a lot of time to get to there. But I wonder if the fortunes would have changed because if Barbarian and Humongous get over to any extent, then do you make it such a cartoon with Jimmy Valiant? Because that's essentially what it turns into. As soon as Baron comes in, then it's Pez, and then it's Kijo Khan. It is what it is. Yeah. Speaking of, the next match is the dog collar match between the Boogeyman and number one Paul Jones. 
Paul Jones, the heel, suspiciously wearing white tights, which may have been a swerve because there is not the amount of juice you would expect in a dog collar match between these two, let alone the fact that it's the heel wearing the white tights. But yeah, as we said, Valiant wins, basically puts a pause on their feud for six months. And, you know, but this is sort of like the end of part one. It's Valiant getting the revenge for uh, one of the reasons this is a dog collar match is because, you know, Jones had injured the boogeyman's singing voice so he couldn't sing. You know, you can still see the remnants of his beard still not being fully grown back to where it had been when the assassins cut it off. Just another step in the Jimmy Valiant-Paul Jones feud. Absolutely. And it's just about getting the people up. Yeah, the Andersons win. Yeah, Landell and Bass go to a draw. Okay, warm them up of people, you know, grumble about the draw. The Andersons, the heels win there. The hated Ole Anderson and this, you know, prick with a southern accent who says he's from Minnesota and can't figure out if he's Ole's brother or cousin or, or what it is there. Some some young guy with Arn. And then you have the six man, which obviously leads into Valiant. You get the dog collar victory there. Everybody gets happy. The Boogie Woogie Man gets a victory. People are, are thrilled. And that leads into the Road Warriors and the Russians, where we're not going to have the ending that we want to have. And then the, the card, again, goes up and down from there. But as you mentioned, puts a, a lid on the feud for right now. People are happy because the Boogie Woogie Man got his win. Yeah, like you said, that leads to the – I don't know if it was – it's AWA champions versus NWA champions. I don't know if it – they build it as title versus title. I don't remember off the top of my head. But as Because you... <laughs> here's the thing. They never, on Crockett TV, there's two things that they didn't really, you know, when you look and things stick out in your mind from that era. Ric Flair never lost the heavyweight title to Kerry Von Erich. We saw him win it back in Japan. They played that tape, and they sort of, kind of, maybe sort of alluded to the fact that Flair had regained it, but... They just made it look like he, you know, was having another title defense in a foreign land against a guy you may have read about in the magazines if you lived in the, the Carolinas or Virginia. And, you know, this was the same way. The magazines talked about the Road Warriors being AWA champions. We all knew it because everybody pretty much had access to Pro Wrestling USA or the AWA proper show. You know, somewhere, whether it be on ESPN or syndication, it, the show was strong. So you knew the Road Warriors were out there and they were the AWE champions. And the, it's it's mentioned in commentary. It has been mentioned at times, but it's never pushed as, as a big deal that the, they're champions. In fact, it's mostly ignored and they never actually bill it as such, although I believe the magazines did. Well, certainly the the intro with... Gordon and Bill out there on the videotape did. And as I'm just looking at it now, they do come to the ring with the AWA titles. So it's not like they told them to leave them in the back. No, but you notice they do come with them in their hands. And obviously they're going to storm the ring and chase the Russians out or begin to brawl with them. They end up chasing them out, but they come in there hot. But those belts are not around their waist. They're in their hands. And as soon as they hit the ring, as they slide in, you don't see those belts anymore. And Nikita and uh, I'm sorry, Ivan and Crusher Khrushchev, they bail on the in you know the ring with the with their belts on, and then they get back into the ring with their belts on. Yeah, but as you would imagine, this is this is a clubbering, 
and a double disqualification because, you know, neither of these teams are going to do the job here. But, you know, you get, you know, however many minutes of these two, you know. And again, yeah, it's setting the scene because, you know, the Road Warriors are, are coming here eventually. So this is all just priming the pump. Yeah, when was uh when was Comiskey Park? Was that March? I or... want to say it's September. Is it okay? So it still hasn't even happened yet. I don't think so, because I think Garvin and Regal win either in September. <laughs> Sorry, Garvin and Regal win either in September or October. I think. Yeah, that's right. Because we yeah, so they've had you know AWE's had some big shows, but they haven't had the that that real big one yet. It was a Russell Rocker. Was it Russell? Not Russell Rock in in eighty. What were the, the Comiskey shows card? Super Clash? No. What was that damn thing called? I will tell you. I will. I'm looking it up as we speak. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I can hear Larry Nelson. I can see the Freebirds paint. I get. I get all that sort of stuff. But I, I can't remember the damn title of the show. Well, I remember the other good thing about that. That was another, another show that they really played up in the magazines. Because I remember they, you know, it was either in PWI or PWI adjacent. That they did like match by match, photo by photos. Yeah, of that each. Yes, that was cool. Yeah, the page dedicated to each, and it was a big deal. And like you mentioned, you know, the Road Warriors. Obviously, you know, people had they knew who they were, and obviously Crockett's trying to get them to come in. You, there's no way you could do anything besides keep them strong because that's all they're going to do. But you're working with a friend of theirs in Crusher Khrushchev, and that was the other great. Is it, is it not symbiotic? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, what is it? Uh, what they call it with the serendipity? Would it be serendipitous? I don't know. But with Nikita Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev being in your promotion, and you have the Road Warriors, who you got a taste of in '84 there for a minute. In late '83, they came in and they had a little bit with Steamboat and Youngblood. And then '84, they're 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 kind of in again, a couple of times, but but only for a quick little taste and as bad guys. But you know, here they are. They're they're going to be coming in. You want them in, and you have Nikita Koloff, who you're building up in such an incredible, immaculate, great way that you can point to as a promoter and go, look at what we're doing to your friend. Look at your other friend who's teaming with you know Nikita. With Ivan right there, he, he's 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 our Paul uh, Paul Elring uh, to to help these guys along. Look at how we're treating these guys. You know, come work for us. And obviously, the match was what it was. Ivan did all the heavy lifting as far as the work goes in it. And double disqualification really should have been disqualification on the Russians. You could argue because they were the ones who initially brought a chair into the ring and and and, and Khrushchev hammered animal with it as he tried to slam Ivan out of the corner, but then Hawk picks it up and starts slamming Ivan and Crusher and throws Tommy Young down or Sonny Fargo. I think it was Tommy Young and they throw the match out and that's it. People are happy because they got to see the Warriors hammer the Russians with chairs, but they didn't get the finish they wanted. But again, perfect timing of Khrushchev having Khrushchev in at that time coming in from Florida after that time he had Mid-South where he became Crusher Khrushchev to have him there, to have Nikita at the level they have, that had to be great for Dusty and Crockett to show off to, to Animal and Hawk and say, hey, look, we're doing modern wrestling, not what that old guy's doing that you're working for now. 
30,000 people outside, and maybe we haven't even begun to make major motion pictures and sitcoms yet. The other important thing about that match is that it's Ivan and Crusher, is that they haven't given them, they haven't seen the Road Warriors versus Nikita yet. That's true. And that's true. And as the year goes on, that's, you know, the, the, the double Russian chain matches with Ivan and Nikita and the Road Warriors and all that sort of stuff. All that stuff is still to come. And Ivan and Crusher, again, it was, you were going to have to figure out something at this point because Ivan and Nikita are the NWA champions. You got the free bird rule in there. So any combination can defend the belts at any time. They're, if I'm not mistaken, at this point, they're still the six-man tag team champions at this point uh, for what that is worth, which is not really a whole hell of a lot, uh, but at least at that point. So you got to figure out, you know, you're, look, I don't know when they decided, hey, we want to build towards the Rock and Roll and the Koloffs as a rematch at Starcade, but you knew you were going to have to get the belt off of Nikita because you had Nikita to me, doing a bunch of other things. So at some point, the belts were going to have to come off the Russians. They ended up doing that with the Rock and Roll Express, but it, then it seemed like maybe that that was the goal, that they were going to build to a rematch at Starcade. But I wonder when it comes to Nikita, because of the success he was having, if there was any question about pulling him out of that team a little bit early. You know, I was funny, I was just looking uh, to answer a few of our questions here before we go on. Uh, the Comiskey Park show is AWA Super Clash. That is September 28th in Chicago. And then the next night in St. Paul is when Garvin and Regal win the tag belts. Ah. So, okay. like, two months later. But it's funny, as we're talking, and I'm saying, you know, we're talking about, hey, they're holding off on Ivan and Nikita versus the Road Warriors. And my first thought was. Did they hold that off all the way until the superstars on the super station? <clears throat> and as I'm looking at these results from September, you've got a bunch of Road Warriors versus Russian matches in various places. A lot. It's probably Pro Wrestling USA or uh, Pro Wrestling USA in all but name. But the there's an AWA title match with the Road Warriors versus the Russians in Rupp Arena, which is listed as JCP slash CWA. And then two days later in Philadelphia, it's a it's uh, Crockett with Road Warriors versus Russians, Ivan and Nikita. And then the next night in Asheville, it's Road Warriors versus Russians, but it's Ivan and Crusher. So Ivan and Nikita have Russian, wrestled the Road Warriors at some point in Crockett, after the bash, but before the Russian, before the Road Warriors come in in '86. Well, you know, it wasn't official, but there was a Great American Bash on tour in 1985. They just called it the Firecracker Spectacular in in, in, uh, in Georgia, where they did it for uh, in Macon on the same day for Fred Ward or Augusta. I think, I think it was in Macon for that show there, but they did work with Continental and they did have the great American bash make its way to, uh, to Continental where the rock and roll express faced off against, um, the, uh, the nightmares. 
but you still had Tully Blanchard and Dusty Rhodes, and you still had the Road Warriors against the Koloffs, if I'm not mistaken there. Like you mentioned, the show that's listed as <clears throat> same sort of thing where they did that deal together and they, they had a show under the, the, you know, the Great American Bash tour name or whatever it was. Uh, but but essentially was just a a joint show working together. Same thing with those pro wrestling USA's, which at this point were essentially AWA shows when you would watch them. Yeah, so it looks like those handful of matches are the only ones that they have probably until until eighty until late eighty five because they go back to the AWA in September. They lose the belts and then they go to Japan for a while. And then they come back to a handful of things in the ABA, and then then they're in Crockett. So <clears throat> they've pretty much just been. And again, where are we going to have the Road Warriors versus the Russians? We're going to put that in Philadelphia, where they appreciate it. <laughs> yes, hell yes. Hey, they did in Baltimore too, you know. So it's like they, you know, cities like that, and and those cities needed that at the time too, because for as great as Man, yeah, you, we want to show off our wrestling. We're different than them, so we're going to have Jack Briscoe, Ric Flair. Or we're going to have Ric Flair and whoever it's going to be, Harley Race for the belt. But, you know, we need our blood, and we need our plunder, and we need larger-than-life guys. And for anything anybody wants to look, Khrushchev was a big dude. Barry Darso was a big MF, okay? Nikita Koloff was gigantic at this point. Obviously, the Road Warriors or the Road Warriors were their image and all that sort of stuff could get over anywhere. Any of those guys just being who they were at the time. And that was really important because that's what WWF was selling in those cities were larger than life were these bigger than life characters. Well, here are these bigger than life characters who also we know can really kick ass. And as I look it up, I I don't know if we've. Uh, discussed before whether you were at the show or not, but the Baltimore show that I went to in February of 86 also had Russians versus Road Warriors on it. The, I have to go back and look for the program and everything, but I, I would believe so. The uh, Where is it? The, the wonderfully named Pro-USA Battlestar 86. Battlestar 86. Anyway, you know, and I'm trying to, like, Oh, I wish I still had the TV from that time because it's not like when you were watching Mid Atlantic and Worldwide. Like they didn't call it that. It was, it was they they basically when that thing went up, it was just like watching a regular show. You know, and the only I do remember local promos on uh, Channel Fifty Four, WNUV, like doing like giveaway tickets where they would hype up both shows and the fact that one came on it was it eleven, one at twelve, or one at twelve, one at one, whatever it was that you know, that they were to get Pro Wrestling USA or whatever. But I, when I recall those shows being hyped, you know, on the Crockett TV, it was just like, you know, the NWA is coming to Baltimore. You know, and they did mention, obviously, the AWA world champion and this and that, but it was just like every other blue and orange drop promo. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, next we have, as we've mentioned a couple times, the United States title match with Magnum versus the seemingly dropped-in, out-of-nowhere Kamala with also the very rarely seen in Jim Crockett promotion, Skandar Akbar. Yeah, you know, a Mid-South taste, which, again, if you were uh, an obsessive little kid reading the wrestling magazines, 
you know, these two had history with each other. You knew, you know, the Kamala and you knew obviously Kamala had been everywhere at that point. You knew who Skandar Akbar was, the little bit that they were on WTBS and also their syndication at that time. God, did we get it? We got it on. Uh, I can't even remember what channel we got it on as far as syndication goes. It was probably 54. But, you know, they had that little run on TBS and everything, too, there for a little while. So it's not like people didn't know who Skander Ifar and Kamala was. But it was an interesting choice to make, you know, to bring these guys over cold into, you know, essentially cold and drop them into such a big match in such a big situation, especially because there's no job that's done. You get a visual pinfall. You get Magnum kicking ass. You know, you get him body slamming Kamala. You get all that sort of stuff. And I think if you were to ask people, hey, who won that match? They'd say Magnum. But if you asked them how, they may say pin. And that wasn't the case. That visual pin that got shown on TV, and hey, maybe that was Abdul's. He knew that was going to happen. You know, that visual pin that got shown on Crockett TV, that didn't end up happening because at that point, Magnum had already won by disqualification. And the belly to belly was also after the after the bell too. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. The everything that would have, you know, I want to say mattered, but you know, everything that would have, you know, given him the clean cut victory and a defense of the United States Championship, eh, was a little askew. It didn't really happen because at that point Kamala had already been disqualified. That was the other weird thing too. And you, you look back, but also with that said, you know. Kamala had had a name because breaking Andre the Giant's uh, ankle, and you had that that got played everywhere. And Kamala had been everywhere. World class, obviously, was all over TV. So you had him there, too, which that was another thing with his national reputation. You know, he was just one of those guys, one of those guys like an Andre or, a, you know, a handful of others, just one of those specialized, you know, special, certainly a special character. Well, the interesting thing about it, is given their past history, not necessarily in Crockett, but you could have easily for a week or two, although it would sort of tinker with other storylines, you could have always just given Kamala to JJ, you know, and and that would have made sense. So, you know, the fact that you, you brought in Akbar with him. But here here's the interesting thing about... Uh, Sugar Bears uh, matches right around this time. So in June, he had actually wrestled for Pro Wrestling USA in the Meadowlands, where he wrestled a cage match versus Slaughter. So he has been doing some work with them, but up but the week before the bash, he's solidly in mid south. He's wrestling Duggan. He wrestles Watson Duggan. He wrestles uh, Murdoch and Duggan, and he does some TV, and then he comes to Charlotte for this match, and then he goes right like, and then he's back in Houston, Mid-South, Mid-South, Mid-South. So it wasn't even, you know, he didn't even come in to do TV. It was just like this one weird, you know, one-off. And like I said, and then here in April... Well, he's doing Pro Wrestling USA, so I guess maybe he had been on that TV, but it's not like he had even appeared in Crockett anywhere. You know, it's funny, he does an AWA TV taping, AWA TV taping, 
Pro Wrestling USA TV taping, and then another Pro Wrestling USA show in the Meadowlands. Oh, I had it like this. April 18th, Pro Wrestling USA taping, Kamala wins a handicap match in the District of Columbia. So I'm mad. <laughs> How do you think Kamala would have gotten over at a taping in D.C. in 1985? <laughs> at the D.C. Armory Starplex? <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> you know, I can, I can, I, I can actually only imagine, um, you know, him, I, I, I can, him going out there and kind of just uh, going through the crowd and the looks and then just the squash and everything. And maybe he could break out the pencil and the whole nine yards. Just absolutely, completely ridiculous. And, you know, there's nobody. You have the relationship with Florida. But there's nobody you could bring up. Like, you know, and I'm looking at it now. It's like, well, you had Hercules, but he's the Southern champion. You're not going to bring him up and have him lose. There, you know, Rick Rude, there's guys who aren't even close to being ready yet. There's not enough of a roster there. World class, obviously, isn't going to give you anybody you can really work with there. So, I mean, you were, and, you know, he wasn't going to come in and do it. And he's already working with Vern anyway around that time. So it's like, you know, Kamala, if it wasn't going to be Kamala, who was it going to be? <coughs> Here's something interesting. I'm looking at this Pro Wrestling USA show in D.C. This is funny for a couple of reasons. Okay, it does not say the building. So, but okay, so Larry Sharp wins a squash match. Kamala wins a handicap match. The Samoans versus King Tonga and Mass Superstar. That's an intriguing match. Uh, Tonga Kid versus Larry Zbysko. Uh Martel defeats Backlund by countout. And how about this? AWA World Tag Team title match, the Road Warriors win by DQ over Ivan and Nikita. So they wrestled on a Pro Wrestling USA show in DC before the Bash. That's, that may have been like a Bash, well, I would say a Bash tune-up match, but it's Ivan and Nikita. But so, yeah, they had even occasionally tangled before the Bash. I would have loved to have known the building for that. Because if it's not the Starplex... There's no way they rented, you know, and obviously Gary Juster threatening to go to court is how the NWA ever got into the Capitol Center, which they never should have got into in the first place because they couldn't fill it. Bad area, you know, run Baltimore as opposed to, you know, bad area as far as being able to draw, you know, it, it, it just it, it was a bad idea. So the only thing I could think of was they either did the Starplex or they had to have run like Catholic University or something like that. I'm trying to think of where else they would have been. Yeah, but that, yeah, it doesn't have attendance or anything. It just says location, Washington, D.C. So A bizarre lineup. No, but, you know, the Samoans versus Haku and Bill Eddy is, is an intriguing match that I wouldn't mind seeing. Oh, man. Well, I mean, Mass Superstar was just... God, he was always awesome. And then, you know, I had that little bit of a taste of him in the AWA and on Pro Wrestling USA, you know, at the beginning of that year. And then <coughs> that was kind of it, you know, did the Japan thing and all that stuff. And then, you know, when he came back again, it was, you know, I really remember him <laughs> during our, our youth run was demolition, obviously. Definitely. Yeah, it's a guy, 
you know, you wonder had he stayed longer in Mid South too, in what late '85, early '86. You know, right when the right when the name change happened, you know what would have happened there too. That would have been intriguing. Absolutely, I always just I always he's another guy like those guys we mentioned earlier on with all those listed names. You know, put him in there too. And it's a blessing that we still actually have him as we record this. He's still alive and kicking, and he's got again just a a special career when you look at how he came up as a Mongol and, you know, the experiences he had going to the IWA, you know, at the, the battle with Crockett and then they're absorbed into Crockett. You're having matches. And then he goes away for a day or so comes back with a mask, a new car and a new look. And now he is the intelligent, sensational mass superstar who can cut an intelligent promo about he's going to kick you into pieces and disassemble your entire body. And, you know, he was awesome in that role. He was awesome doing that. And, you know, I remember him a little bit, you know, when I was real, you know, real young, the stuff with with him and Backlund, you know, that, again, was, was not long for me because right after that's when everything started to shake up and change and Hogan came in and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, Mass Superstar, if you go and look back at Sports Review Wrestling and The Wrestler and Inside Wrestling, PWI, all those magazines, he's surprisingly on more covers than you think and you have more features than you think. Definitely. So then we get to the world title match. Uh, Flair, Flair coming in the helicopter, which, you know, is still one of those great things that you know, it's probably been repeated a couple times, but it was certainly the first time I ever saw it, and it's still a great visual spectacle. Flair wins, beats Nikita. My favorite, my friend Justin's favorite part of this match, which again is probably not not uh, would not go over well in 2022, is when you have Ivan at ringside, jaw jacking with Flair, and Flair wipes the blood off of his head and flicks it at Ivan. <laughs> Again, 1985, kind of dubious. 2022 probably wouldn't be cool, but still very funny. <coughs> but yeah, and we and we have to. And we, what an insult! It was like when Rick Rude would take his sweat and just like whip it off his chest. Same sort of thing. Like that is the ultimate. Like, all right, like <laughs> you know, here I'm going to throw my blood in your eyes. What are you going to do about it? And like we said, and David Crockett uh, is a special referee. Yeah, nothing, nothing uh, impartial about that. Nothing to see here. Even as a little kid, yes, he got his ass kicked. Yes, he got knocked ass <coughs> over the But why is he the referee? And that was something that, again, as a little kid, there isn't the back history there that you know of David Crockett always being up in everybody's business and all that sort of stuff. To me. Yes, he was the brother of the promoter, but that's even less of a reason to make him the 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 special referee. So even as a little kid, there was a you know there was a moral issue here. There was a problem here with how this thing was laid out. Yes, he got his ass kicked, but now how can this guy who got punched by this other guy and talks about how he's friendly with Ric Flair and how they got in the plane crash together and this guy I've been back with and he's my brother's number one. Uh, moneymaker. He's the referee? Come on, even as a little kid I knew that was shady. 
I think this match may have also been the first time that I saw someone break the figure four by just leaning over and raking Flair's eyes, which is a great spot by Nikita. It's yeah, <laughs> it's it's one of those again. It's it's a small thing, but and you know the more I think about it, not many people did that. You know, Piper did, Funk did, but you know, and uh, you know what? I guess. Maybe uh, we'd have to ask Cornette or somebody like that. Maybe there's the little uh, in the heel uh, guidebook that is there where you, as a heel, you should not do drop kicks. But if you're going to get out of the figure four, poke somebody in the eye. Well, plus, if Flair's a heel, you know, pretty much after this time, then you're not going to you're not really going to see Dusty or Magnum or Ricky Morton raking Flair's eyes to get out of the figure four either. Facts. Absolute facts. But, uh, yeah, so Flair wins, and then we go on to the main event, which, inside the steel cage... Let's too, we, we, we should really mention about the Flair match, because it's not really all that great. I mean, it's, it's, it's Nikita, it's so early. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good match. It has a jumbled finish. That they Flair was smart enough to know didn't work, so they worked another one that didn't look aesthetically pleasing, but it didn't matter because he got the victory. But the heat, and and thinking about it in hindsight too, because God knows, yes, they had cops and all that stuff. He had twenty five thousand insane people, many of whom were on that infield. You know, however many people were on that infield. And people actually hit the ring. There was a guy who actually successfully got in the ring, bear hugs Nikita from behind, who just kind of falls against the ropes. And he's not really selling it because I don't know if he thought it was somebody else or whatever. But the cops are right on this guy. Security is right on this guy. So they get him out of there. But after the match, after Flair gets the victory and the the Koloffs just start beating the shit out of Flair. And I mean, they leave him, look, Nikita had to take the L here, but you're still building him up and you're still building up the Russian contingent as a menace. And they kick the shit out of Ric Flair at the end of this thing. Sickle him over the top rope, beat him senseless. Everybody who tried to run in the ring got beat up. Nikita's beating up three guys at the same time. And as you see that happening, you see multiple people trying to break the police line to get into the ring. That's probably, in hindsight, if somebody were to watch it with today's eyes, like that's what they're going to take away from it is they'll forget about the match. It's the heat of the, of what took place and the ass-kicking Flair took afterwards to keep the Koloffs strong. And one thing, you, obviously, you don't see is the, are the Koloffs making their way back to the dugout <laughs> to go back to the back because I can't imagine how many beers and batteries and everything else they had to dodge. I was say, you think Ivan had flashbacks to the baseball stadiums in Puerto Rico, probably? Holy smokes, yeah. And, I mean, you know, it's not like Ivan hadn't had some knives shoved, you know, towards his face throughout many places in the Mid-Atlantic. But, you know, it, it, you got to, at a second, you know, you have those types of situations happen. You only have so many cops, and you just have to hope, like, general civility will take over and a mob mentality doesn't break out where five or six or ten or 30 more people – 
at least want to go and help out, you know, Ric Flair because he's getting beaten up so badly by the Koloffs. <laughs> I was gonna say, you know, I would, I would certainly no stranger to, uh, to crowd. I mean, if you're the guy that beat Bruno, you, you know, can anything really pale after that? And like, sure, we're in a riot in some foreign country, but you know, I survived beating Bruno in the garden. I would still love to know how many actual uh, death threats and well-connected men in certain secret organizations who wanted to help out Bruno and, and take a shot and wanted to, to torture Lou Albano for helping out Ivan Koloff. You know what I mean? <laughs> I wonder how many truly there were of, of conversations like that with people that pissed off. Also, I was re- was I was listening to something. I guess it. I don't remember what it was. Oh, one of Carl's shows. He was talking about when Don Morocco beat Pedro Morales for the Intercontinental title. I guess this is like early '83, and it was like Pedro's first clean job in like 14 years or something like that. And I'm like, I'm like, yep. Didn't see Pedro doing many clean jobs in the Northeast in the '70s. They did not. In fact, I just watched that match because as a Patreon exclusive. Wow, I get to actually hype one of these now. Look at the timing of this for Mid-Atlantic Pod, and you can find it at patreon.com slash Podcast if you want to tip me a couple of bucks or tip me a lot of bucks, and I'll pretty much do anything that you want, you know, within reason here. We'll talk. Anyway... I just cut all the audio for January 22nd, 1983 from every show I could find. And I was doing that because obviously on the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, we pay little clips and try to add some context to them and give listeners an idea of what's really taking place. And sometimes I'll take them from other TV shows in the country running that same weekend. And I couldn't really find anything that I wanted to use on the Mid-Atlantic show that was really relevant. But I decided to take everything I could, and I just strung it together. And I kind of, it's like basically wrestling you can fall asleep to. And it is all of the shows from that day, including the Madison Square Garden show, which took place that night, which has Pedro blowing out his knee, missing uh, a knee in the corner, and having uh, Morocco work on that. And then when Pedro's making his fiery comeback, he actually delivers an over-the-knee backbreaker on the bad knee, which Gorilla Monsoon and Vince McMahon just basically call him a huge, gigantic dumbass for for the remainder of the night. And Don Morocco gets the victory, the magnificent one walking around with his second Intercontinental Championship. <coughs> so, so on to the main event. World television title. Inside the cage for the services of young... Perfect 10 baby doll. Dusty versus Tully. You know, again, this is only 1985, so this is not the feud that will never end. This is only, like Jimmy Vang and Paul Jones, a feud that comes and goes as time, you know, as, as needs be. And when there's nothing else, we can always have Dusty and Tully do something. Dusty and Tully inside the cage. And, of course, we've already had, this was, do you remember off the top of your head how how earlier the Silver Dollar feud was? Was that maybe a couple months earlier? Was it longer than that? Do you remember? 
Silver Star was March of 85. So Dusty came out with the bags of money in January of 85. I could actually find out the exact date. I got it somewhere here, but it was basically January 85 where Dusty Rhodes like, who do I look like, Ben Alexander? I got money. David Crockett, give me some of that back, Bob Cottle. I'm watching you. And he did that whole deal, and he brought all that money out there and, and started challenging Tully. And basically, you know, in one motion, you know, because he was getting rid of him anyway, you know, Ricky Steamboat and the whole deal with the $10,000 at, at Starcade was like gone. Or five thousand, whatever it was, there's ten thousand there, but like all of a sudden it's like silver dollars and we're doing it this way and we're gonna have a bigger prize because damn it, as we will find out later on, we didn't really know it if, as a young fan then, because of Dusty. <laughs> and then at, at Silver Star, Dusty breaks Tully Blanchard, which by the way, I still don't think is even though it will always be hyped this way, especially from that time, because you can't change the past. Tully Blanchard, the longest reigning television champion in history. I think Paul Jones held the belt longer. I think I discovered that, that it was at least a couple days longer. But regardless, over 350 days as champion, Dusty takes away from him in March 85. Uh, we get this match in July. So this is still sort of, again, the percolating feud. But we've now added Baby Doll as a prize. Yeah. Which Dusty, as you know, which will lead to. A few weeks of great television, unfortunately leading to the death of Floyd the Horse. Well, <laughs> not the death, just sway back. Funny, I was watching some of the TV from after this, and <laughs> it, it may be the first week where okay. du- where Dusty has uh, Dusty has Baby Doll, and she's still fighting. She's still fighting him off, and again, 2022, not so good. Dusty just grabs her and plants a big smooch on her. And then she runs off and Dusty says to the effect of, and he's all sweaty too. And it's like, this is going to be harder than I thought or something to that effect. And then chases after her. And then, you know, then we're going to get the vignettes later and Dusty's credit card and Floyd the horse. A baby doll shoveling all the, the manure in the stable when she's in, you know, her... Her, her high post gear, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. You know, Dusty and, and Nelson Royal talking to each other. I mean, there is comedy. That was the one thing. When Dusty Rhodes went in there, there are visuals that take place in Crockett that if they took place somewhere else, if some fans saw them, they would go, well, they, they would make fun of it or point it out or say something about it. But with Dusty, I mean... He would sprinkle them about, and and the, some of this stuff was like that. And I was a northerner. My my parents were born in Jersey, in North Jersey, and you know we moved to Chicago. They moved to Chicago. I was born there. We moved to D.C. We I I'm sure I don't know if my dad did. I don't remember him ever watching westerns. So this type of western justice, where damn it, we're gonna take this little woman and we're gonna teach her how to be proper, ma'am. And come over here, and give me a big kiss, and then she just melts in his arms like that. All that John Wayne shit. I, at the time, I didn't. I, I was having trouble wrapping my brain around. So to see this woman who was forced into servitude with Dusty Rhodes, thank God there was comedy involved because it, it, again, it didn't make any sense, you know. And it and it certainly was not as entertaining as what was going on with David Von Erich and Jimmy Garvin and all that stuff. 
you know, that I remember seeing in the magazines that took place a couple of years earlier, but baby doll and dusty roads, you know, it, perfect combination there with, with all of this. And, you know, essentially it, it puts the TV title back on dusty, which he loved. <laughs> he loved having that belt. You know, he was quick to, when they bought Georgia, boy, Tully Blanchard, really, as soon as Dusty took over the book, I mean, it wasn't even, they haven't even taken over the Georgia TV yet. As soon as that happened, that title became the world television title. That was the NWA television title. Whatever you saw with Bob Roop on national TV or Jake Roberts or Ronnie Garvin, and Ronnie Garvin and Jake Roberts in 84 were awesome. But, you know, any of that sort of stuff, forget about that stuff now. It's the big belt, and they went with the new redesign. Obviously, that that takes place a little while after this, but the new look of that belt, and this is, this is it. Like Dusty and Tully and Arn, when this is over, when this era is done, in, in '87, when Nikita wins it, and I, not to discount Nikita or Mike Rotundo, but like, this is when this was the world television title. They talked about it as a world title. They put it on the same platitude as the world title, the World Heavyweight Championship, and the World Tag Team Championship. World Junior Heavyweight title of, of Denny Brown, not so much. I'll still never really understand anything about that. But that to the side, it was a big fucking deal. And Dusty now being able to be on three shows because the television champion is going to be on a lot of shows. And damn it, Dusty as the booker. And the biggest star was going to be on a bunch of shows. It made a lot of sense. Obviously, it opens up Tully and Magnum to go through the end of the year. Because as all this stuff is going on, Mark, you know, you know that Tully-Magnum thing started to percolate. And that was the great thing about Dusty's booking when it was strong. The interweaving that got done and some of the fairy dust that got sprinkled in different places with different alliances that were loose or different feuds, or guys looking at each other in a certain way. You know, that stuff was great, how the TV was formatted, where, you know, Magnum TA cuts a promo, and then it's like the Barbarian, and they don't really mention anything, but then it's, they, they would do things in ways and frame things in ways that just worked. The Rock and Roll Express talking about being World Tag Team Champions, and then they don't say anything, they have no beef with each other, but the Midnight Express are the next match. You know, and stupid little things like that just to start putting it and conditioning people and putting it in their brain that these people are going to be maybe brushed up against each other. Ric Flair may be cutting a promo about Brad Armstrong because he's facing him tomorrow night at the Omni, but the next guy wrestling in the ring is Barry Windham, who is also here and maybe on the track of Ric Flair. So all when Dusty stuff was strong, it was really good. And the stuff right now with him and with Tully with Magnum and everything that leads into 80 Starcade 85 is really awesome. The only problem is Dusty always in the title picture. And I still 1984 should have been Wahoo and, and Ric Flair, but obviously Wahoo had the U S title, but Dusty and Flair in 84, I still will always think would be, a, will be a misstep and as over as Dusty got, you know, I still think that there were people even later on, you know, because I remember banter and things like that. It shows where he was always Dusty and Flair. Dusty always trying to get himself against Flair, always trying to get himself against Flair, even when there were people that fans hated that wanted to see them against Flair as opposed to Dusty, who they liked. But goddamn, we don't want to see you there all the time. 
I mean, that's really that was the sign of it in 84 that there could be a problem. And then obviously by 88, we know what it was. Well, a couple things from there. One, the, the, the interweaving, it's like, it's important to remember at this time in wrestling, um, generally speaking, all the faces were friends with each other and all the heels were sort of begrudging allies, if nothing else. So, you know, you could occasionally get the random six-man where you just have faces teaming or heels teaming for no other reason than, well, you know, they're heels or they're part of the same stable or they used to be partners or whatever. You know, what's up in AWA? Because I think at this point in the AWA (laughs) right now, you're having matches with the Road Warriors and Crusher Blackwell as a team just because they're the Road Warriors and Crusher Blackwell and they're over as, 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 you know, everything when they're and they're out there beating up on Sheik's Army or whoever it would be. Well, I mean, because in theory, you know, in 1985, baby faces were good guys. So why wouldn't you just team with each other because we're all good guys? You know what I mean? It's it's not like, you know, Batman doesn't team with Superman because they have beef. It's like, well, we're all in the Justice League together. So, of course, we'll team up, and then if you need help, I'll help you. And if you, you know, I'll guest star in your book because we're both good guys and you need help with something. So, it was kind of like that in wrestling, too. I mean, people forget that the horsemen were kind of a loose affiliation and, you know, again, named by accident in one promo. But, you know, that sort of happened organically. It was, you know, the Andersons, and we're in six-man, so, okay, we'll team with Tully because we're all feuding with Dusty. And then Flair turns heel, and Flair's friends with the Andersons, but Flair still doesn't really like Tully. Yeah. You know, and so... That's the best part, because, and you know who wants Flair? Nikita. Well, Nikita's, you know, this bad, he's a heel too, but damn it, if Ric Flair's going to face him, but you know who hates Nikita? Dusty. And they have business to deal with. And just that, when it works and everything plays itself and there's just a, it's great. And that's what was the, that was the greatest thing to me about 86 was, you I mean, Ric Flair being able to defend the title against 18 different people also meant that you had all these other unique matchups that all still made sense, whether it be Road Warrior Animal teaming with Magnum TA to face off against, you know, whoever, Tully and Oli or whatever it would be because Hawk was facing Flair or whatever it was. It all worked. It all, all, all of it kind of worked together. That was like Tully and Arn and Wahoo, Jimmy Garvin, uh, Ronnie Garvin, you know, all the stuff they had going on on the undercards of those bashes in 86. That was some of my favorite stuff. Well, the other thing with the bash is not only do you have Flair facing all these different people, which jumbles the card, you have Baby Doll and Babyface Team X versus the Midnights and Cornette, which is also dictated by who's wrestling Flair. So that if if it's if Flair is wrestling one of the Road Warriors or Ricky Morton then Dusty and Magnum are going to team with Baby Doll to wrestle the Midnights. If Dusty's wrestling Flair, then Baby Doll's going to team with the Rock and Rolls against the Midnights and Flair, or against Midnights and Coronet. And again, you know, and who's in a tag match and who's in a single? Is Tully defending his belt against Ronnie Garvin or Wahoo? Or is it Tully and Arn versus Wahoo and Garvin? Or Tully and Arn versus the Garvins? Or... 
etc etc again you know you can mix and match everything because and and again you know this is something that you have in every place almost except the wwf is in regional territories everybody has history with everybody else so that if you know you suddenly have to have you know a, a guy face somebody he's not currently feuding with but hey he feuded with him two years ago. And because wrestling fans have elephantine memories, they remember that. And in regional promotions, they did not shy away from telling you that. And fans, too. They had a relationship with the fans. And I think that's why, and I'm biased, but like 86, it's the end of territorial wrestling working on every level in Crockett to me and I could be completely out to lunch on this but like by that point what Vince was doing was already what Vince was doing and the production and the national stage and blah 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 and yes when it came to house shows yes okay we're going to get Alexis Smirnoff to work San Francisco or we're going to get the crusher if we can get him in to do this gimmick we got going on in Milwaukee when we go there or whatever, like they did that, but like they were already national. Most of the other places like mid South, unfortunately their business was atrophying so much locally for some of the, you know, obviously some things are in their control. A lot of things were out of their control. World class at that time was in flux. So, and they weren't, they were having, they were closest to it, but I think of serving both masters, but even by then, like the Mike stuff and all that stuff that happened, like Crockett was the only one who had, you had Dusty and you had Flair and you had Magnum TA and you had young guys on the way up and you had like, you were, you had Valiant still that when you went to Fayetteville or you went to Roanoke or you went to C-Town, B-Town, those hardcores that have been watching wrestling for a long time, they were going to come out regardless of anything else because Valiant would be on that card. Meanwhile, your national audience is being, you know, their appetite is being satisfied because they're getting fed national superstars. You're seeing them on WTBS. Meanwhile, local, I mean, you have regional stars, you have local stars, you have national stars, you have all the feuds are kicking, whether you like what's taking place with Valiant or not. The, the people that are invested are really invested and they're doing what they do, whether you like it or not. It's a different story, but they're doing what they do. But guess what? If you don't like that, you have the rock and roll in the midnight or you have it's just they were loaded. They were they, their tag team division was humming their secondary titles. They may have had too many of them, you know, when it came to the third and the fourth titles, but they they wanted to take care of that situation once again. Wahoo McDaniel, a perfect guy to either close off or take a title off of or have some drama with. They do that with Wahoo and Nikita mixing those belts up in 87. No, in, in late 86 when they unified those belts. So, like, to me, that was the last time that, like, all boxes were checked. And, and I could be batshit insane about this. If anybody on, at Semper Vivi on Twitter, at Mid-Atlantic Pod, if you want to make fun of me for these takes. But in my mind it's the last time that all boxes were clicked and it was 
the last like unification of casual fan, hardcore fan, new Hulkamania era fan, old Crockett Anderson's, you know, gritty fan, you know, weekly show type of fan. I, I am I am I nuts? Am I no, nuts? No, I agree. You, say it? No, I agree. But uh, it's funny. Speaking of B show towns, you know, there there are a number of people that we've mentioned on the show today, and you're like. Why weren't they on the bash? The answer is, and this is, again, why we love this era of wrestling so much. Well, even though Jim Crockett was having its biggest show of the season in a stadium with 27,000 people, well, by golly, we have a B-town to run. And so, while everybody that we've named has been in Charlotte for the bash, there are some guys working in Columbus, Georgia that night. There it is. And who's working in... Well, you can probably guess many of the people who are working in Columbus, Georgia because they have, they're not on the bash card. But here we go. Thunderbolt Patterson versus Mike Davis. Kevin Sullivan versus Pez Watley. I guess that's your, your Knoxville tribute match. <laughs> uh, Brett Wayne Sawyer... Versus Kendo Nagasaki. You wonder why Brett wasn't teaming with Buzz. There, That's where Brett was. The Midnight Express. We've mentioned them a couple times. Yes, the Midnight Express had been in Crockett already. I think this may have been like their second week in Crockett. Versus Joe Lightfoot and the Italian Stallion. Black Bart versus Ronnie Garvin. There's where Black Bart was, so he couldn't save JJ uh, from Ron Bass. And a Battle Royal. Split between Loverboy Dennis and Beautiful Bobby. No attendance given. I think, let's see, let me see if it's in the old uh, Midnight Express scrapbook. But if you're wondering, you know, that's mostly a lot of the guys that are just on the Georgia crew at that time. I can't remember if it's in the book. I think I, think I looked recently, July 1985. Well, it was a, a $10,200 house. That's what uh, Jimmy has listed. So yeah, so they they're only they've only been there since the end of June. The June 29th was their debut on the Superstation. So yeah, so they've been there a week or two. Yeah, they they basically just got in there, and if you're watching, you know, if you ever go back and watch the TV at the time, obviously the Midnight Express become a focal point of the show, but really it was the Andersons and Dick Slater and Buzz Sawyer were the only things, the only relevant pieces. And even then Dick Slater, again, once he was down there for when Dusty put him down there in Georgia, like he, he was like persona non grata, you know, up in on regular JCP TV. He just really wasn't around all that much throughout the spring and the summer because that's where he ended up being. Ole and Arn, obviously, especially Ole, you know, more of a presence and in Arn on the, the main part of the roster in Charlotte on TV there. You know, the Midnight Express would, would soon follow after that, and obviously Pez Watley did. You know, Kendo Nagasaki and Kevin Sullivan coming up from Florida to do that. Joe Lightfoot never really, I don't think he ever really appeared in JCP that much after that. Obviously, Black Bart and the Italian Stallion, who were both working Charlotte before 
Crockett got its tentacles in there, and certainly we're down there after that in Black Bart's case to take the national title off of Ronnie Garvin, which is one of the things he had going on with Garvin in this no contest match. So it was like it is it existed in its own little world, and, and Jim Cornette's talked about it plenty on his show. You know, the Midnight Express winning the Battle Royal. It's one of the things he's referenced in the past where Dusty made it very clear the Midnight Express don't lose. What if it's Battle Royal? Then they both went, split the money, and walk out. And that's exactly what they did, which would cause problems with Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater, who they would have run-ins in constantly as Slater and, and Sawyer had no interest in doing what Crockett wanted to do on, and, and having themselves be hurt on the way out to Mid-South. And like we said, do you, and if you're a 22-year-old Jim Cornette, do you really want to be getting into an altercation with Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater? No, and really, I mean, the one thing that, the, 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 I don't want to say the only thing, but it was the only thing that the Midnight Express had going for him was Dennis Condry and an arsenal of weapons. Because Bobby Eaton's a very nice guy, and Bobby Eaton's a tough son of a bitch, and I know he knows uh, to hurt somebody if he really, really wanted to or felt his life was in danger, but he ain't beating Dick Slater in nothing. And he ain't beating Buzz Sawyer. If Buzz is tuned in correctly, he probably ain't beating Buzz either. So to have Dennis Contrary around as somebody who is actually almost as insane as both of those guys, if need be, if pushed into a situation he could be, like, that was it. That was really the only thing. And then as you hear Cornette tell the stories, you know, the story about them busting into the trailer and going at each other uh, and then Sawyer missing the step on the way out and then face planting right on the ground. Um, I'm not doing these stories any justice, but, you know, Slater and Sawyer obviously didn't want to be there. They were pissed off, didn't want to deal with any of this shit and knew that their time in Crockett, they weren't coming along for the ride and, and they knew it. And, not many guys from, from Georgia did. But then again, by that point, there weren't many guys left. No. And so, uh, wrapping up the discussion of the bash, here, here are the two fun things we've been saving. One, uh, I do believe the Great American Bash issue of PWI, which, much like that AWA show we talked about, gave amazing coverage to, with like 8 to 10 pages of pictures about every match. I believe that's the first issue of PWI that I bought off the newsstand. That's another reason this show holds a special place in my heart, is I think that was the first Aftermag that I bought. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think it was. That is so awesome. I can't even remember the first one I bought. Uh, but I, I just, but damn, that's who, but I tell you what, though, as a postscript coming out of this show, one thing I always remember is, you know, on the back of the PWIs where it would show the full-color spectacular posters that the kid had hung up on the wall from the special editions that they did yep. of Rest USA or whatever it was, and there he was, and he had his Remco figures sitting out there on the table, and he's looking up, and he's looking at that picture of, of Hogan and Martell and Flair, and he's dreaming and all that. That was me. And I, and I remember, I always remember looking at the back of that, and I always remember, it's like, I wish on my desk I had a copy of Ringmasters, Lords of the Ring, and also a copy of that Great American Bash VHS tape, which eventually I ended up with, unfortunately, is now also long gone. But, you know, that 
it has that show, this show obviously is it kicks off something that's real important to us as fans of that time and as fans of Jim Crockett promotions. You know, it was step one for the bashes of 86 and 87 and everything that that would mean, you know, moving forward, even to not exactly today, but the, you know, in some ways the name lives on, but you know, that was, Oh, it was just, it was awesome then. And that's how I'll always remember this show for, for that sort of stuff. And again, being mass because of the relationship that WWF had with, with everybody, which was a terrible one and cutting, you know, the, the every photographer out of the ringside area and, and them having to shoot from the stands and them just not wanting to deal as much with Vince as dealing with Dusty and other people that wanted to deal with them and being able to get all of that coverage in those magazines. Again, I know some people weren't magazine collectors. It wasn't a big deal, but for a lot of us, especially in the Northeast, man, we were saturated with magazines and that meant something, at least to me as a fan, it did. And, the other thing that I was going to mention is the PWI tape. Um, PWI had put out the Lords of the Ring tape, uh, I think the year before, or maybe even earlier in 85. And so this was their second, I think second and only, videotape. And it was highlights of the bash. And it was Gordon and Bill Apter injured, you know, doing their wraparounds. And unfortunately... To my knowledge, and I've asked some people and haven't gotten an answer yet, but I don't know if there really is unexpurgated footage of this bash. Like, I don't know if this now exists in the vault in Stanford, you know, that they could, you know, someday unearth as a hidden gem and say, hey, look, here's the 1985 bash. Um, what You know, we have an hour of highlights. That's, you know... You know, one of the reasons we did not go into in-depth in discussing all of these matches is because we just, we've never seen them. You know, we saw a lot of the flare match and some of the dusty match, but the other ones we got maybe five minutes of clips. You know, so that's all we have. And I I went looking for, I have this tape somewhere. I bought it from PWI. Um, it's somewhere in the house. I went looking for it, couldn't find it. I found some other fun videotapes. One of which I sent you a picture of last night, the, which I think you popped for, the greatest sports legends uh, episode where Tom Seaver interviews Bruno, including like Russell's Bruno in the gym, which is hilarious. Yes, yeah, but in the in the, uh, the leg scissors. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I found that. I found that that AWA Road Warriors tape. Uh, and, and this is again another thing for another day. I found I found one of my bootleg 1991-1992 hockey fight tapes, which is <laughs> which ironically is is fitting because it's uh, it's Jeff Merrick's birthday. So what what better way to to honor Merrick than to watch a hockey fight tape? Probably I have to remember now, to, I have to remember to tell him that should, later. Was it a was it a Don Cherry that got taped by somebody else or was it just? Ones from uh, like taped off TV from Prism and all that sort of stuff. No, this was this was this was uh, much like the wrestling tape trading underground existed. Then I believe this is just a random. I don't remember where I got it. I I think I got it from an ad in the Hockey News. You know, but it's just I have like three or four tapes from that era. They're just sort of random fights. Although I do have one tape that is just uh, the Bruise Brothers. 
Bob Probert and Joe Koser, a, a table of just them from around this era. So I thought that was that was funny. The was funny, it, the funny did, thing. Oh, go ahead. Let's, did you <laughs> the article? I saw an article not within the last couple of months, uh, and it was a okay. No, it was a it was a video of a news, a local news channel somewhere, and I, I'm pretty sure it was outside Philly, a Philly channel, that actually talked about guys who would get together and watch hockey fights on VHS. Like, they had a little group of traders and stuff like that, and they actually have a TV feature, and it has to be on YouTube. That had to be where I saw it, but yeah, that like I didn't realize, and it just it hit me. It's like, so there was, like, wrestling tape trading for, like, hockey fights. I never... It just it never went in my head to think about that. I, 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 for boxing, yes, of course. Mixed martial arts, yeah, the, the whole rise of that. Taekwondo fights, this or that, or bare, bare knuckle fights. I never thought about it for hockey, but it makes complete sense. Well, especially in the era where you could not watch hockey. I mean, so this was, I mean, this tape was from ninety one, ninety two. So this was, yeah, one of the dark eras where I think the NHL had their, we were on Sports Channel. Because I lived in Indiana, and I don't believe I regular. I think we would occasionally go go to guys' houses that we knew that had dishes, so we could watch Sports Channel Chicago, so we could watch the Blackhawks. But I do, I remember in that time, we had we had prime sports in Indianapolis, but I don't believe they ever showed hockey. I think you know during that time, and it wasn't on ESPN, so I think. I didn't get to regularly see hockey until either I came back home to watch. We may have had home team by then or watching the Flyers on 57. But like when I went to Ohio and got passed and then I was able to watch the Red Wings all the time, you know, that was during that, that dark period. So I wasn't getting to see hockey on a regular basis then. So no, it's horrible. I mean, unless you had cable, you were really, pressed to and we were lucky obviously because i think it was channel 20 whoever had uh you know the bullets in the capitals like we were able to see every game but you still at home if you didn't go and you didn't have an hts or somebody like that you didn't get a chance to see those games and a lot of times if the same channel would have your local basketball and and hockey team obviously basketball took precedence it was terrible at that time you're right it was awful but uh, back to the PWI tape, uh, this is where I thought you were about to go somewhere with the back cover of the PWI. So I'm going to quiz you on this. So I'm looking at the I'm looking at an ad on the back of a PWI from 1986 that features the Lord of the Ring videotape and the PWI videotape. Can you tell me what they were selling them for? Thirty-nine ninety-five. Thirty-nine ninety-five plus postage. Ah. $15 off retail. Lord of the Rings and PWI were priced for rental because they were $59.95 each. Yep. And what was shipping $5.95? How much was shipping? Shipping was five bucks. Ah. So close. But yeah. Yeah, and well that's it's one of those things that people And can you look at the prices of like owning 
a Disney or a Rocky and it's like, it's a hundred dollars, like the $80 who did that, that that's why, because they were made for rentals, <laughs> you know, that, and, and to be rented out, you know, a zillion times by whoever bought it for 80 bucks or a hundred bucks, you know, that's what they sold them to those places for maybe a little bit more of a discount, but you're made your money off of renting them. Well, I remember the first video that I bought as a kid that was quote unquote affordable was buying Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which I think was either 29 or 39 one of the two probably. But that's what that's what pri- price for purchases were like, 29 or 39 That's That was the cheap version. That was not, yeah, the 110 whatever price for... Here's the other funny thing about these two videotapes. Do you know what else you have to do when you order these videotapes? You have to choose whether you want it in VHS or beta. Beta. Uh, now, see, hindsight being 2020, that eh, wouldn't matter. I was a kid. We already had a VHS and, and all that. But if I could go back in time and buy a couple of Betamaxes and for the picture quality and, and all of that and the fact that internationally so many people use beta as well, too. Like, oh, man, my whole my philosophy would be much different on how I ended ultimately taping things, which, you know, sadly for me was uh, at the time I started doing it. VCR said it's six and eight hours because I thought I'd have these things forever and I never thought about them breaking down the same way that smart people did. Well, if people I'm sure anybody listening to us talk about this has already heard it. But, you know. If people have not heard the segment on Coronet Show from a couple weeks ago, which I was theoretically in, indirectly responsible for, where he discusses his tape collection and what tape trading was like and tape collecting was like in the late 70s and early 80s, you definitely need to listen to it. Because, yeah, you know, he talks about having beta machines and deciding what speed to record stuff on and choosing beta and how, you know, People would be amazed how much blank tapes. The, the other reason that we taped everything at six and eight hours was just because how expensive blank tapes were back then. Yeah. I think he said when he started recording, it was still only two hour and four hour. You didn't even have SLP yet at that point. That but, would make sense. I mean, I, I have tapes that I, you know, from like 83, 84, 85 that were. You know, I guess my family had bought her where like with Super Bowls on them and stuff like that, and they're two and four, and it's like, damn. So there was net the EP was whatever six, I guess it was, and and whatever regular play was two, but it was like there were only two options. Yeah, I was looking at some of the I would put in some of the tapes that I found that I was looking at the. Uh... Yeah, and they, they were some of them were actually at LP, and I'm like, when did I ever record anything at LP? That's very strange, but because this is this is stuff from the '90s, so it wasn't like super long stuff didn't exist back then. But yeah, it's it's. I think I still have most everything that I still recorded from then. I still have some more. In this. I know I still have, I still have my '85. Uh, clip tape because that's the stuff that I occasionally post online. It's why it's so horribly grainy when you see it. Like, you know, there, 
like that clip of Tully that I love posting when uh, he's talking. It's after him and the Andersons had beat up CM Houston in the parking lot. And he's denying it to Bob Cottle, saying it wasn't them. And he said, Bob Cottle, from what I heard, Sam Houston was not doing his manly duties, and his girlfriend beat him up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and Baby Doll just starts laughing. Now it's very funny that she's laughing at this. But uh, or in the cornet, the cornet clip when uh the first time he sees Big Mama, you know that's all from I guess probably September of this year. That's like right around from when I started taping stuff because it's <clears throat> it's some cornet stuff. It's the Andersons. It's a bunch. It's like the very beginning of tie dye Billy Graham. So this is all you know fall '85, and I think that's from like where my stuff starts. Everything else is like things I've acquired since then, but that's like my original my original stuff. You know, did not realize that like I. What a great time I picked to like start watching and recording Crockett, and I still wasn't able to watch the TBS show, which is the annoying part. Yeah. That you know, like you know, I don't have stuff from TBS until like '86 when my friend that lived in town, quote unquote, where we live in the country, because they had cable. I mean, you know, we did not get cable until the summer before I went to college. So like, you know, I did not regularly see the TBS show ever until then. Which is kind of a shame, but you know, a lot. Of, you know, the good thing about like the eighty-five, eighty-six stuff is the syndicated stuff is probably still more important than the TBS stuff. Probably, I'd say so. Yeah, I'd absolutely argue that. You know, again, you got maybe got somebody in you hadn't seen before, or you got obviously you got bigger matches, especially when they would do like the championship challenge series or whatever. But yeah, I mean that was. You know, Worldwide, to me, was always the most important show because it was obviously taped after Mid-Atlantic. And, you know, when it, again, that was tough to get in my brain at first. To like, okay, which one, how does this work when they're showing clips of the same thing on the same show? And then it was I was able to figure out, okay, they're always showing something happening on Mid-Atlantic or NWA Pro on Worldwide, but it's not vice versa. So they taped that Pro in first. Uh, but they were the most important shows and, and most important things going on there, you know, by far. And, you know, it's, again, hindsight being 2020 with, you know, I love Bob Cottle, but Johnny Weaver as a, a co-host, maybe it would have went with somebody else. But then again, it was the regional appeal and him being on Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, even though it was being called NWA Pro. And that took, you know, more time in some places than others. But, you know, it was, you know, it was an ode to that. And I think a hat tip to that and all that. But, you know, I didn't, I had more audio tapes than videotapes just because we, you know, the one VCR that we had to that TV was the family room TV. So I wouldn't get as many cracks at it. I had a sister five years older, a brother five years younger, and still... My mother and father, you know, who wanted to watch things at the same time I did. You know, we can't I can go in my room with the little three inch TV or whatever and watch wrestling while my brother is watching cartoons and or my father is watching football or whatever it was like I hadn't access to watch it. But I had to tape, you know, I ended up taping a lot of stuff 
you know, on audio. And unfortunately, so much of that stuff's gone. Almost all the videotapes are gone. I think I have some old Saturday Night's main events and things like that from like 86, 87. But for the most part, almost all that stuff, you know, just in, in constant moves and things like that. I have one audio tape left. I got a handful of videotapes, but one audio tape left, and that's it. I think I have, like, one audio tape somewhere. I was telling uh, Chris and Bix this once that I'm not sure about this. It's very possible I actually have audio tapes somewhere in the house of Joe Goodhart's radio show. But I'm not what? I'm not a hundred percent because I know I know I listened and I know I was a member of the fan club even though I never went to anything. But I think it's possible I may have episodes of that somewhere. But it, the, the problem is like almost all of my audio tape stuff from that era is like ninety nine percent Stern Show. You know, that's where my audio effort went to. Like, my videotape effort went to the wrestling, but, like, my audio stuff was, like, all stern from, you know, like, 86, 87, 88 before I went to college. But I I think I still have, like, one, like, tape that's, like, all coronet stuff on audio. I hope, if I ever find that tape, because I don't think I have it on video, I think that audio tape may be where I have the infamous... Uh, promo of Cornette, uh, cutting a promo for the King of Prussia show in Philly and asking who the King of Prussia was and why he had a communist enclave in the United States. <laughs> That's like, I, I don't, I don't think I have it anymore because I think it was, I had two tapes and one disappeared and I think it got thrown away with the tape recorder that it was in the, uh, the boom box whole thing, I think. I don't know who ended up tossing it, but it, I, I just have not been able to find it. But these were when we came down to the beach and my grandparents were living in East Millsboro on the water and Channel 16, I guess it would have yeah, it would have been 16 that was showing Crockett. And they're coming to now I'm used to the Baltimore Civic Center slash arena, the Capitol Center. Even though it was a dump, the DC Armory Starplex, places of, of, of the big places, Capitol Center, RFK Stadium, and they're running the Wacomico Youth and Civic Center in Salisbury, Maryland, and the South Dorchester High School Gym in Cambridge. And it was like Jim Cornette comes out there with just as much gusto for the Baltimore show uh, or for the Salisbury show as a Baltimore as he comes out there, we're coming to Wicomoco. And <laughs> it was just like, I, you know, it was, that was the one thing too, even though you saw the results and everything where WWF did a masterful job, at least in, in my head and like big events, like you're, you're, you're running a high school. Like when I was a little kid, I didn't realize that like wrestling ran every week in high schools and drew like half the town. In fact, they drew more than the capacity of the towns in some cases with people coming from far and wide to see the local guy, you know, to see these stars from TV on these shows. Like it would screw me up. Like the way that WWF did presentation and production, like 
if I walked into the Baltimore Arena and it was 5,500 people, even if they were raucous, it was like, what's wrong here? And it's like, you know, the idea that every crowd was full and it wasn't, but because of the way the TV was and the fact that we run, remember when they would show it on the beginning of, uh, uh, was it All-Star Wrestling, where it would Boston Garden, the Spectrum, the Olympic. Like, they would have the Madison Square Garden, these big arenas, like, damn, this is big time, and it's like, they're running South Dorchester High School? <laughs> like, it just because I wasn't, I wasn't used to that because my wrestling was always at the Baltimore Civic Center or at the Capitol Center. It was just, it was it was different. The odd part is, had you been more in the Northeast, then you probably would have seen them like advertising both coming to Madison Square Garden, but also coming to like West Islip High School on Long Island. You know, what I mean, well, they, they were running both, so so that probably wouldn't have seemed as weird. Then probably no, and when like going up there as a little kid, I don't like watching uh, the Garden and who else, whatever channels would have been that had wrestling W O R and everything back at that time when we go up there and visit. Like I don't remember the voiceover ones, so like they may have very well been doing that. I just don't remember hearing them. And in the D.C. area, they never ran. Spot shows, and I shouldn't say never, but they weren't, they were rare and they weren't a big deal and they didn't happen. Like John McAdam and people that, I mean, those folks in Massachusetts, in Jersey, in New York, where they're at the CW, CYO Hall in Trenton, and then they're, or they're here, or they're here, or they're this place or that, and it's like, there's a zillion shows taking place. Well, just imagine if you'd have been old enough really old enough for when they used to tape TV down there, how that would have been, how that, how different that would have been too. I still look at that steel pier show from, uh, uh, God, what was it? 1980. That's got Andre and, uh, uh, Ted DiBiase on it. And I'm just saying, it's like, I, I can, I, I wish I, I could go back in time and be at the steel pier in Atlantic city. <laughs> for this television taping it just I, I don't know if it was for prism it probably was but it's just like it's bizarre absolutely bizarre to me and tv being taped because again being you know allentown and was it hamburg like yeah. they were still doing those tapings then when i started watching you know and then they they shifted very slowly you got the red white and blue ropes and a little bit of the production changed, and then all of a sudden it was taking place from wherever. Brand, oh, what was it? Glens, not Glens Falls, New York. But the, what was the spot in New York they always went to? I can't remember. Yeah. but Or Hamilton or wherever it was that they – and then obviously they started doing the gimmick where they would have the GM of the uh, the building talk before the show welcoming the WWF to the area. I just It's one of those things where it's like I now think about – like, over the course of my life, how, like, I, like, just missed lots of stuff just because of the way things changed. Like, I moved to Indiana to go to college in 1988, so there's no more bruiser. But, like, if I'd have been there a couple years earlier, I would have potentially watched, like, the horrible end of Bruiser's TV. Or, you know, that I was in Bloomington and 
but like the first three years I lived there, I didn't have a car. But if I did, theoretically, every so often, we could have like gone down to Evansville once a week to watch Memphis. But like that just didn't occur to me. Or, you know, that I wasn't eventually, you know, like we had planned a couple times to like make the couple hour drive down from Ohio to go to Smoky Mountain. Just never got around to it. But it's like I was, or, you know, I lived in, you know, I lived in Hampton Roads. Unfortunately, you know, I saw one WWF show in this scope, but it's like, you know, unlike, you know, like Dean or somebody, I did not grow up down there being able to go to the scope. You know, like how great would it have been to be in a kid in the late 70s to see like that Crockett every week? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh you know what I mean? But it's just... <clears throat> there's like all these places where I was that like had my had I had my interest in wrestling when I did it would have been so much more beneficial but it's just like you know unfortunately like my one experience for wrestling when I lived in Indiana was going to Wrestlemania which you know was no great shakes and I, I mean I was writing about it for the paper anyway so I was kind of working but you know what I mean, if you gave me a choice of all the WrestleManias to be in person, you know, eight's probably near the bottom of the list of the ones you want to say you've been to. <laughs> I mean, not, I mean, like nine's probably like the worst, the one in Caesar's Palace, or you know, some of the mid '90s ones. But you know, what I mean, it's just like, or I guess now probably like five, but you know, or you know, never, you know. Living in Hampton Roads right after the death of WCW. So I didn't even get to see, like, you know, like those couple years where they ran Starcade every year down there. Slight, just before when I lived there. But well, so if, I, if I was a fan now, you know, if I was the same age now as I was then, and it's like, I can't imagine how many times I would have put miles on the car going to Richmond and Salisbury and Martinsburg or wherever. Cause it, again, it's, it's not that it's yes, it's far, but it's not that far where I wouldn't go out of my way to go see somebody or go see somebody work a territory that I wanted to see. And you know, it's, I'm, I mean, obviously we've spoken so many times about, I, I know how lucky I am for the amount of media and channels that we got and the amount of wrestling I was able to see, I just wish I was able to have documented it better because it will forever kill me that there's like two or three seemingly central states out there from when it was owned by Crockett, and that's airing. It, it was airing on HTS. It was airing locally. It was in some other spots. Where none of nobody's got that, and at least nobody stepped forward with it, and it just kills me. I wish I would have been able to record all that and keep it in the same way that you at least still have some stuff left. Yeah, and I mean, it's like a godsend every time we find some new stuff. And you know, I was just talking to 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 Crispy, you know, is about doing. You know, he's going to do the pod sometime soon, and we're going to talk about all this quote-unquote new stuff that he's been putting up that is it very good no is it kind of bad yes but it's like i'm glad we have it it's you know exactly i mean, I mean the of it. 
was like he was I mean he was saying how not great some of that South Atlantic stuff was but I'm like one this is eminently watchable it's like it's not it's not embarrassingly bad because it's still a lot of old Crockett guys running it and so it looks like just like the dying years of Crockett but it's also like (coughs) it's like hey I got to see like Six months of Robert Fuller promos I've never seen before, and the the funniest stuff about that, some of that stuff is, I was amazed of how good Paul Jones was after, you know, four years of him being, like, one of the worst people on wrestling TV that I watched every week, and suddenly, he's a babyface again, and he loses his mustache, and suddenly he's interesting and compelling, which... I would never have bet in a million years. It helped when he was standing next to the future Ken Shamrock there too, when he was uh, when he was managing. <laughs> but I mean, you have that. I mean, there's that Robert Fuller Paul Jones match. That's very watchable. And I mean, how old is Paul Jones? Probably there in his fifties. You know what I mean? And Robert's probably in his late thirties, maybe forties by then. Eminently watchable. That. The 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 Gary Hart Texas stuff that he put up, that stuff's very watchable, and it's all like well trained. It's either old guys left over from Dallas, like you know Iceman and Terry Garvin and Matt Bourne, and you got Rod Price in in Austin, like young Austin. I'm like, this is eminently. I mean, the funniest part about I don't know if you watch any of that stuff, like the. The, the lady ring announcer. It, <laughs> yes. I, that's the person I want to know about. It's like, who was this woman? Because she's got like this... <coughs> this woman has this like weird charisma. But she's like, she barely knows people's names. But she's entertaining. And it's also just weird to see Gary Hart being like a babyface neutral matchmaker. Yeah, yeah, which, which I don't it, know if I've like ever seen before. Well, the whole thing was weird. Like the table at ringside, it looked like it was probably the, you know, pay extra, and it, you know, it just the way the seating was. Uh, I'll, I'll, just the couple that I've seen, yeah, that, and he, she would probably she's got a good voice, as you said. It's kind of a weird charisma, a pretty lady, but it's like you would have a better time reading the names off the cue card and it would be a lot smoother, but she couldn't help look at the camera and just kind of just keep staring and smiling as she's doing the ring introductions. And I tell you, Rod Price and Steve Austin as as a tag team, I could go with that. I was fine with that old rugged Rod who was blown up very much so. <laughs> and Steve Austin who was on his way to being. But I mean it was it was very the the little bit that I've seen of some of those shows like I'm happy they're there because you know how I am with uh, with the wrestling independent network stuff and and Maryland stuff that that, that took place and all that. Like, it's not like I don't obviously go back and see old Ian Rotten so they can kind of make fun of him and make fun of his old name and this and that and everything. But it's like it's part of the history. I want all of it, even if I don't want to watch it, even if it's not got any redeeming value for whatever like somebody starts there there's there's something to take out of all of these shows plus 
I just want as much history as possible to be memorialized and be able to be put out there. You know, it's funny you mentioned the wind stuff. That's another thing. Like I was, I was away at college during that whole time. So like, you know, that's all like, I mean, other than, I don't even know if I was getting the observers yet. So like, that's all just this mystery to me that like, you know, I had this local promotion that was kind of trying to be the new third national promotion, blah, blah, you know, whatever you want to say that like, I just totally, it's like a total blank for me because I wasn't here. So, I mean, it's funny, like I would occasionally hear, like when I worked for, for the Maryland Championship Wrestling guys, like I would occasionally hear some of those older guys talk about, you know, some of that stuff that went on, but, you know, like, I mean, just because even by the time I was working there, like Rich Myers was still there, you know, and Dwayne was there and, and some, you know, and <clears throat> some of those guys, but it's like, I'm just like, wasn't here for it. Don't, don't know anything about it. That's all that left. Some of that, I think we talked about last time, some of that EWF, MCW, Carlou, whoever it was, whatever the, the the sandpaper of the moment happened to be, and it's like, what the fuck? And then we, like, you know, you find out later on from the guys, and it's like the same sort of thing. It's like, fuck, you know, because they don't, you know, they don't care. In most cases, they're just trying to, to get paid and work and navigate and all that sort of stuff. And it's just like, it was, some of that stuff was crazy, especially like the ECW, some of the stuff during the ECW era of MCW, uh, you know, when, when Steve, the, the Stevie Richards left and he's worried about the FBI going after him because it was just, it was like that wrestling shit. <laughs> it's like in hindsight, how much of that stuff was, you know, you're fighting over Arbutus or, you know, in hindsight, it's like so much of it is so ridiculous. Most of the most dumb things are obviously all that trivial shit is ridiculous. I would say it's not like having six promotions in Philadelphia, which you can kind of understand. It's like, yeah, fighting over Baltimore. I mean, it's like, yes, Baltimore is a big city, but like in the overall scheme of things, wrestling wise, it's kind of like, you know, you could probably have two promotions coexist in Baltimore and everybody would be fine. To say, like, so, you know, whoever's running Hempstead, which is for to try to give people an idea in North Carroll County, let's say a solid 45 minute drive from Baltimore. Like, that would cause, you know, well, why are you like, you can run some other part of, like right in Baltimore, like some of the stuff. And then it went up into Pennsylvania and some of that, it was, yeah, it was dumb. Well, I <laughs> mean, well, knowing the way, and plus, you know, knowing the way Baltimore works, it's also it would be eminently possible that not 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 like the same night running against each other, but like if you had one promotion that was kind of based above the above the toll and you had another promotion that was based like below the toll, they could probably exist because I think maybe <coughs> I think like maybe in history when I worked for MCW that like they ran like maybe like four shows that I went to that were like above the toll that like I didn't have to, because like every time they ran team, the Teamsters building, like I had to pay for that. You know what I mean? Even though it's like just right over the tunnel, but it's like, 
you know, you could, you know, you could probably have a promotion that was centered, you know, like around the Beltway or like maybe in White Marsh that could probably draw decently that you do not have to draw from like Southern Baltimore or, you know, somewhere in between Baltimore and D.C. You could probably moderately coexist and then you could probably run a promotion, you know, like in Glen Burnie or something or like in Jessup that didn't really attract people from like White Marsh or Harford County or something like that. And you could probably coexist. That was always one of my things was you, you, somebody from Carroll County, Howard County, Montgomery County, you know, from Western Howard. They're not going to Dundalk to the wrestling show per se. Like you could have easily run Middle River, Arbutus, Essex, Patterson, or uh, uh, Patapsco, like all like that area. A little north, you know, just that whole general area, a little south of that, like, you would have the same people, like, it, w- it would be more than possible to coexist, you know, and to go further north, to go a little bit more towards the bay, to go a little bit more towards south, like, and then have a completely different-minded wrestling promotion that, again, catered more to the areas of which, are, like, to me, like, wrestling could still... Wrestling can always still survive on a regional scale if you know who your people are, you know? And, and again, you can't make zillions of dollars or anything like that, but, like, you can make money. You can do this if you're smart about it because, again, all all politics in some ways are local. Like, I know some of these things may be outdated, you know, sayings to people, but, like, shit is local. And if you can, if you have a way to manipulate them, if you have a way to fire people up, you can easily do that. I look at where the Briscoes are, and you know this area, like Sussex County, Delaware. I I guarantee you, if you gave me enough money, like I could run a general part of Delmarva, get a certain fan base. Probably not for tons of money. Obviously, you got to spend a little bit to get some names there, but like you could make that work because these people never leave this area. They are this area. They don't get off this peninsula. Rarely. They certainly don't have much experience outside of it. Like some of that, the same way if you go to Western Virginia, the same sort of thing could apply where you could still do this on a small scale. And that's why. Where it does still work, it is still kind of like that. But, but it's again, you. Long story short, you to me, absolutely, you could have done it then. You could do it now if you wanted to. Let alone then. Well, I mean, you know, you only have to listen to Bo tell stories about running spot shows in the middle of nowhere, and it's like, again, you know, you don't need to draw a fifty thousand dollar house to be successful. It's like. You know, Bo can be out in the Appalachians, or Appalachians, depending on whichever preference Bo prefers, um, you know, to draw, you know, a couple thousand people and be successful. Because, again, I mean, it's like fairs. You know, it's your once-a-year, you know, entertainment coming to your hometown. It's, But, I mean, it's like, you know even if you're in Maryland, it's like, you could probably have a decent promotion that like, 
was in Hagerstown and only drew from like Hagerstown in West Virginia and be successful and not even worry about Baltimore. And there have been promotions that I, I think have done that. You I mean, know, I mean, obviously, yeah, uh, a scale, but yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, we used to drive out. I mean, this certainly was not a very big promotion, but I mean, when we did, you know, when I worked the brief time for Atlantic terror, you know, out there in whichever West Virginia city that was, you know what I mean? It was like, you know, the normal, a uh, bunch of the MCW guys and some Pennsylvania guys and some West Virginia guys, and that's all you need. Because, you know, if you're in, <coughs> I mean, if you're in Martinsburg, West Virginia, you know what I mean? You're probably not getting a lot of local attractions coming to your part of the country. You know, and I say that as somebody that lives in the country, too, but unfortunately, or fortunately, I live in the country where it's equidistant to everywhere. You know what I mean? It's like I live in the country, but, you know, it's a half an hour to the University of Delaware. It's a half an hour to Lancaster. It's in 45 minutes to Baltimore. It's an hour to Philly. But, you know, it's not like, you know, I've never, I can never recall, like, wrestling being run anywhere near me, like, here. Like, we've had shows over in Hartford. I mean, you know, for God's sakes, W, you know, NXT ran in Bel Air. I mean, they called it North Baltimore, but it was Bel Air. Bel Air, yeah. I mean, TNA ran. TNA ran at Ripken Stadium. So, you know, I mean, you can, you know, for once a year. You know, it's not that big. You know, but I mean, I don't know if you were a local promoter whether you could run up here you know, monthly or even quarterly and be successful, but you probably have a, a decent shot as long as you got like, I mean, now you just need, you know, your certain ex WWF guy to bring in to sign autographs or a, you know, a slightly younger WWF guy to put in, you know, the main event and you'd, you know, you'd probably be fine, but Again, people here are also kind of used to having to go places for for live entertainment, even if it's just going. Again, now you can go half an hour to see the Ironbirds, or you could go an hour to see the Orioles. But well, you know, I didn't I didn't have any appreciation for small town life because I never had to live in one, you know, until I moved to the beach. So, you know, to, to me. Howard County was the, the countryest place I had ever seen in my entire life just because there was some open land, you know, like when we moved up there and it's, but I was still, you're still, you are a half hour away from DC or from Baltimore for sure. Where we were at, you were, you know, not really the same amount of time from DC and there was, you know, Frederick and there were these other places that are around Amish country. If you wanted to go to, there were all things that were close, but like I never, I had always known city, so until I moved to the beach and I started driving because I love to drive, and I'm like driving these back roads, and I'm going through Dorchester County and Caroline County and down through Delmarva, and we drove down to the Outer Banks one time, and I'm just sitting there and I'm driving, and it's like looking at all these small towns and going through, and it's like that. This is why it worked. And it can still work. And you think about like what Hermie Sadler and, and 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 Dave Hebner did, and the Hebners were like, 
I'm, you know, and again, obviously there's money. You have to space it out and things like that. But why were they able to put on, you know, some some good shows with the TNA talent that got good reactions and all that stuff, sort of stuff? Because it was that same mentality. Like, we're still going to be the biggest thing in the area. You know, it smacks you in the face if you go out to Jimmy Valiant's place as you make that drive down there. And, you know, a lot of the shows that, like, you know, the names of the towns, your your natural bridges, and then your places that are even smaller than that. You know, like, when you look at them in the, in the results, your, your, your Arcadias and your Dalevilles or your Catawbas or wherever they ran, these small little places that, you know, Sandy Scott and Johnny Weaver, you know, would put together. And, you know, obviously Shawsville, where Jimmy Valiant lives, but it's like, you know, Blacksburg, you know, Roanoke was a solid sized town. Blacksburg was, was where Virginia Tech is. So, yeah, there's some people there, but all the rest of these places, they're all spread out. They're all tiny little towns. But like Jim mentioned on a show not all that long ago, and like Bo can, has said before, it's a big thing coming to a small town. So it's probably going to get out a lot of people in the area right in town who don't get a chance to see exciting things happen all the time but it also draws from all these other places where people are used to traveling in case they want to go see something or in case there's something they need to buy or whatever it is that they want so you have that place that's you know only a thousand people technically with the census and you end up drawing 2,500 people to a, a middle school or you know you're you know you're in the you're in like the southern places where like the high school gym is bigger than like the population of most of the county because the entire county goes there. But, you know, but if you have wrestling, you know, then you can draw 5,000 people in a high school gym in a town that, you know, only has 2,000 people in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. In theory, absolutely. Small colleges, you know, you put small college, big high schools and small colleges are essentially the same thing. You know what I mean? You know, because, you know, Crockett, everybody, because a lot of people always, you know, it's a, it's a, it's jarring to them to see the, uh, uh, Catawba College building where they were filming TV and you see the banners hug in the background and you see, uh, the, 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 the basketball hoops up and the scoreboard in the background and that, yeah, I, I I know it has been pointed out and has been made fun of and things like that, where it's like, where are they? And it's like, that's what they did back then. You know, they're, you know, just the way it is. It's like, it's the it's the same sort of thing. And again, how many people were there? Well, tr- know, was, there? well, trust me, living in Indiana, I learned that, like, there were high school gym, high school basketball gyms in Indiana that were, like, bigger than a lot of the colleges that I knew other places. I yeah, mean, like, I mean when when they I remember we went when they made blue chips. Like that was supposed to take place at like some sort of like fictional Indiana Indiana college. And but that was actually shot at like a high school that looked like a mid-level college gym because because it's Indiana in like 1992. That's how it was. You know what I mean? And it's the same places with like football stadiums in the south. You know, what I mean, your Texas, you know, your Friday Night Lights places where, you know, the football stadium is probably like the biggest building and the nicest building in the county. Second, probably only to the Armory 
another places another place where wrestling traditionally was because the armory was the biggest building in that region of the country. Yeah, you got me thinking about blue chips now. How did Matt Nover get the gig next to Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway? He was I think he was a starter during that time if I remember right. And look, it's like you know, if you're making a basketball movie, you've got to put a lot of jobbers in it. And, but he, he was basically playing the Larry Bird role. Well, I mean, you know, if – well, you know what the other thing, too, is he might have been a senior – well, that's a good question. If you were playing college basketball, I assume that would not affect your eligibility. Well, he was he was out. He, I was going to say – I was going to say because if he was a senior – because well, what I was wondering is, is like how old Damon Bailey would have been at that point and would like – they not want to use him because it, he might have been like too young, quote unquote. Because obviously, you know, you put you know in 1992 Indiana basketball, you put Damon Bailey in there to as Larry Bird. Again, Matt Nover, big, nice guy, kind of good looking white guy. Yeah, put him as the put him on your small forward as the guy who just actually plays the basketball in the movie. <laughs> Doesn't need a speaking part. I actually saw that movie in the theater. It was, it was one of the few movies I remember actually going to, to see in the theater. But. We actually, they, uh, I don't remember who it was, but they offered us the chance to have people from the newspaper go and, like, be play members of the press, like, at the basketball scenes. And I think one or two of the guys at the paper went. Cause like that, cause they filmed it like during the summer. I want to say like summer '92, maybe. Cause I think that's when I was sports editor. So well, that makes sense because Shaq. That's when they all graduated was '92. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I just remember. Yeah, I think like cause I want it. Where was it? It was maybe it was in Franklin. I'm trying to remember where where exactly they, but I mean, yeah, it was one of those places that was like a traditional Indiana high school power, sort of like in the middle part of the state that has like that had like you know a ten thousand seat high school gym, and that's where they filmed it. That's wild. It's a let's like like I it's the high school stadiums in in. Uh, the football stadiums in Texas and in some place in Alabama where it's like, wow, <laughs> you know, when you, cause it, again, Friday night football night was never, again, we played most of, I was mostly played on Saturdays. You know, we didn't, we didn't have that, you know, any sort of deal that way. By the time I served, you know, where I was playing, you know, in Howard County, Montgomery County, everything, it wasn't, it was almost always on Saturday. So, like, the whole tradition of more rural areas, because, again, that's another one when I moved to Delaware where I'm at right now, where it was, like, Friday night was the thing. Homecoming is a thing for the community. Like, you know, prom is a thing in some places for the community where there's a little parade, and it's, like, there's a lot of, local civic pride and there's a lot of that sort of thing and the importance on you know athletics it was a little di again a little different where i was from not that there wasn't the emphasis on athletics but it was just 
it was different, you know. And again, I'm growing up outside the cities as opposed to a smaller town, you know, it was just it was it was wild. It was a, it was a different thing to get down here and actually experience a little bit of what a Friday night type of situation is, although, you know, one ten thousandth of, you know, something that would take place in, you know, Midland, Texas. Yeah, see, I think I think football was Saturday afternoon here, so it's hard to remember because I didn't play. So, but yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean, it was not a big thing. Mine as a youth because it was always Monday, Wednesday, Friday practice with Saturday games, almost always early. And when you run in Beltway League and your father's one of the coaches, man, it made for some long ass days sometimes. Yeah, I just yeah I. Yeah, I don't remember Friday football being a thing, but then this is now 35-ish years ago, so. Yeah, it's like, I think, you know, it was one of those things. There were also, the other difference, too, is in the, in at least where we, I don't know, maybe, there was a lot of schools. So there was a lot of Friday and Saturday, you know, I, even when Thursday, when they were able to get Thursdays going more, like they were quick to do that. Where I don't know if that's the difference with, with again, and how these other schools are in other places. And, you know, I'm sure there's a ton of schools everywhere, but they were also, and again, the, there's also, we're in the mid Atlantic. There was a different emphasis on other sports at the same time while football is going on. Yeah. That, and, and again, football in, in the northeast is it's different <laughs> well see i mean where i mean where i am where i grew up i mean i think we had i remember right i think there are five high schools in the entire county so wow. and well i always tell this i i'm pretty sure that when i went to college the population of this county was less than the student population when I went to Bloomington. They were like close. It was like thirty, like slightly around thirty thousand versus like thirty-five thousand. Yeah, so I went from being in the country to, I mean, I mean, Bloomington in the middle is admittedly like a country college town, but you know, suddenly the, you know, the population of the school is as many people as in my county. You know, all condensed in one university. So, you know, that was, that was like a vague, it was like a vague culture shop, but not a real, I mean, it's not like I was in the city. You know what I mean? It's not like I went to Penn or anything, but still it was like, boy, there's a lot of people here, even though this basically looks like the exact same place I just left. You know, cause I mean, you know, you drive 10 minutes outside of Bloomington, you're in the country already, at least back then. So it wasn't really that. I mean, it's sort of like the same was going to Bowling Green. You know what I mean? I mean, it's northwest Ohio, but that's still sort of kind of like the country and like slightly smaller. But there you're half an hour from Toledo. So, I mean, you're, you know, you're not that far away from a big city. You're just in the You're kind of in the country at college. See, this is, you got me thinking. The MAC teams need to get together with <laughs> Notre Dame. Let's see who else. <laughs> you got to have Notre Dame in there. Let's see. We got to have a 22 team league. So the 11 MAC teams, Notre Dame. You got to get Army and Navy in there. And uh, we, well, we, we're going to need some better teams. <laughs> I never, I never went, but I believe, 
I believe Bowling Green was like still good when I was there. In that like that what? mid that mid nineties. I think was it Gary Nodell? They what? were yeah, they were like they were fucking good for a while. Like they yeah, they were very they were very strong. I don't know who is now as much. I t I don't know Buff Buffalo and definitely <coughs> basketball Buffalo is, but like yeah, I mean bowling green for a while there was they were humming. See, I was more concerned with the CCHA by the time I went to. <laughs> Although we were, I think I was the, I was either there the year, I think it was the year after I got there, or the year before I got there, it was like the last time they were really good. Like they won, I think they won the CCHA. That's like when Paul Holzinger won the Hobie Baker that year. I, I want to say that was like maybe like 93. Because... I think the only national title they won was like '84, so that was like way past my, way before me. But like, they were like kind of above average when I was there, and then they kind of fell off a cliff. <laughs> so, but because I'm trying to think, like Michigan State was really good. Michigan State. Well, actually, when I was there, I think was when Lake State was also really good. But because I think that's when Jeff Jackson was coach of Lake State. Because I remember because I actually I actually drove all the way up there to go to a game to Lake State. And that let me tell you, we talk about making the drives around here to go to wrestling. The drive all the way up to Lake State in the UP, right on the border. That's a drive. How how long was it? I want to say it was like five hours, maybe. Well, that was a week I did. That was one of my hockey trips. I went from. This was also I was kind of doing college scouting at the time, or for grad school. So in a week, I went. I went from Bloomington to Notre Dame to see a game at Notre Dame, then across to see a game at Bowling Green, and then to see the department. Then I drove all the way from Bowling Green. I drove all the way up to Lake State. Saw a game, and then on the way back, I saw a game at Ferris State. So that was like, <laughs> damn. Well, that well, you know, that was long. That was not necessarily as long as the week that I went Seattle uh, to see the Boss Man and Vinny and Buddy, down to Portland to see my friends in Portland, back up to Seattle, then to see games in Calgary and Edmonton. And then flew across to Toronto to see the Leafs and the Marlies play. That was like that was like a long two weeks. Let me tell you. How much? I won't even ask. Say you spent some money on that trip. I mean, you know, it was also like 2004, so probably not as much as. Well, I mean, it was a it was a lot of driving and a lot of flying. But see, the thing is, I don't know like how much. <coughs> Hell, the most expensive thing may have been buying the Leafs tickets. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah I'm sure. <laughs> but, well, the funny part about that trip was going to see uh, Calgary and Edmonton in, like, either back-to-back -back nights or, like, Tuesday, Thursday, something like that. As I'm pretty sure they 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 were both games against Columbus. Like, it was the same visitor for both games in, in Alberta, which was kind of funny. Yeah, I guess it's going to happen, but it's like, yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> kind of a shitty thing to get, though. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I wasn't there to see the visitor. You know what I mean? I was there to experience. 
Yeah. You know, to feel the insanely hot flames off those, uh, off the gimmicks the flames set off before the game and stuff like that. But man, you know, you're in Calgary, and you know, and it's whatever it is outside, and then you get in that building and they start shooting off the flames. It's like, boy, is that hot. <laughs> How and, was the crowd? Was it a big crowd? I'm sure they were both sold out. I mean, this was you know 2004 so i don't i couldn't tell you anything about the games themselves i mean i remember more about going to the west edmonton mall than <laughs> like the actual as you might imagine than like actually going to the game itself the best part of that trip was well one i mean the west edmonton mall is like a site in and of itself but the best thing about that trip was they had a hobby store in the mall it was the first time I was able to actually buy, like, the Canadian-only hockey starting lineup, or the McFarlane figures. Because I think some of them were only, were Canadian exclusives. I'm sure. I mean, there was only, I'm trying to think, I had only seen a couple of them, and they were at, like, the higher-end type of card places, and the, you know, that type of thing. I didn't, damn, that's, damn, I didn't even think about them. I haven't thought about that in a long time. I think that's where I bought. There was like a box. There was a box set that was. Oh, who was? I saw this too when I was looking for stuff earlier. But it had a skater versus a goalie in the box, so it was two figures. And I think it may have been the one commemorating one of the outdoor games. So I think it was the figure of Jose Teodor wearing the toque. On top of his helmet. Really? I'm. I'll. I'll look later, and if I can find it, I'll send you a picture. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not in the room. But I know. I think. Yeah, I have. I, I still have it on the wall. Yeah, I got a. I think that's. I think there's a, a goalie McFarland. I think that's Nikolai Habby Bullen. I can tell. I can tell it's an, an Oilers goaltender, but I'm too far away to actually see the name on it. Let me see if I can. Oh, no, it's Grant Fuhr. So that must have been one of the throwback ones. Yeah. <laughs> I know I had to have you. I know I had to have you bull and figure at some point. I couldn't remember. But no, so there's. Well, I'm thinking, I bet you, because I saw a lot of figures by him, so I may be conflating them, but I bet you one of the ones at the. Uh... Where I saw him was uh, Hashik. He had, or at least it seemed like, because I'm trying to think of the, the pose he was in with the legs, and I'm not sure if he was in it or not, but, like, I would, he, I don't know if he, like, they just sent a, a abundance of stuff to of his to the East Coast. There was a lot of his shit. Like, Richter, I understand, you know, there was, uh, oh, God, who am I forgetting from Philly? We have Scott Stevens stuff and... Hextall stuff and stuff like that, but like there was, and they were, I know they were solid at the time too. There was so much Dominic Hashik stuff. But that, I, I just remember that like I had to load up my, my suitcase because as you might imagine, McFarland hockey figures take up a lot of room in your, cause I had a big, uh, like, uh, I had a hockey bag back then. So you know how much stuff you can fit in like a big giant hockey bag. 
But it was yeah. like it was just it was I think it must have had like four figures and I think I bought I think like I bought a box of like OPG cards to bring because I remember going through customs and the guys like do you have anything to declare and I was like well it's like I bought some hockey collectibles because you can't find them in the states and the guys like yeah you know no problem <laughs> but I remember that happened the first time I went to Canada that may have was that. Oh, no, that was the time I went to Detroit. Like, I was in Detroit to see the Wings play. And I had, like, the afternoon to kill, so I just drove across the border, you know, because you could do that in the 90s. You could just drive across the border if you wanted. And, like, I remember going to, like, I felt like I was driving around Windsor, and I saw, like, some card shop. And I was, I went in, and I was just like... He's like, are you looking for anything in particular? I said, well, I'm on. I said, I'm on vacation from the states, and I said, I just wanted, I wanted to buy some of the like the Canadian only stuff. So I bought like, because this this was like during that the the early '90s glut of cards. So it was like I remember. I think I bought like a box of OPG. Oh, that may have been when I bought like a box of. Uh, a box each of like the minor junior cards. Like I bought a box of like Ontario Hockey League cards and a box of Western Hockey League cards and a box of Quebec Junior cards. Cause, oh wow! Because where are you going to see those? Hell yeah! In like 1992, Indiana. You know, I mean, I could buy like the upper deck cards and the score stuff and. All the 900 other hockey brands during the glut, but I'm like, no, it's like, I'm sure it'd be tempted now to look through them if there's anybody from like 1992 playing in like Guelph or Oshawa that went on to become famous. I, I don't think I've ever actually looked. Not that they'd probably still be worth anything, but it would be funny to see. Oh hell yeah, they still mean something to you though. <laughs> but yeah, That's that awesome. but yeah, that was the great thing about at least that time. Is like Canadian collectibles, just because, you know, like a lot of Canadian stuff, and I mean this fondly, that it's like the same but slightly different. You know what I mean? Like OPG yeah. cards versus tops, or, <laughs> you know, like comic books that are exactly the same but are in Canadian prices, so they're slightly different. But it's the same but different. You know, why we love Canada so much down here. Damn right. Exxon and SO. <laughs> but yeah that was but yeah, so, yeah collecting stuff in Canada was always a good time it's like now I wonder I almost wonder given how big West Edmonton Mall is I wonder if there would have been like anything like like a wrestling store there like I wonder if that would have been part of the sporting goods store. I, I don't remember but certainly if you're in western Canada like I'm sure there's like a store in like if you went in a sporting goods store in in Calgary, there's probably you probably could have found like Stampede merchandise, like programs or something. That would have been cool. Now that I think about it in hindsight. Well, I remember the wrestling ring when that you know, oh god, was it called the wrestling ring? Yeah, it was called the wrestling ring. Was it? Uh, oh god, Milford Mill Road, wherever the hell it was, you know, where it was like. Man, that could be awesome. And didn't RF have a pop up or something somewhere? Well, you know uh, what's, what's funny is RF had a pop up in Lancaster, 
at the mall where they sold videotapes. Yeah. And now I'm wondering, I'm like, I bet, I bet, I bet probably at the very same time that, uh, that like Chugs was probably there buying videotapes as like a little kid, like teenage Chugs was in there buying his wrestling tapes, little knowing that, you know, he would become an international superstar someday. Whereas, like, I'm buying the very same, like, New Japan bootlegs that a guy I would g- later watch on television wrestle, and, or more importantly, play Uno <laughs> on the computer. Well, it's like the RF tables that were sent out for the MCW shows, where it's like, and they would have the death matches playing. And it would just be like, you know, on the, and it's like, this is bizarre to me. Like, and then, you know, but I can't, now those tapes I still have, like the Road to the Super J and the Best of Liger. Like, there's so many of those I actually still have. Did I? Because everything, you know, I ever gotten from him had been, you know, at those types of events. And then once all the shit happened with him, uh, I was done. Well, I was, I don't remember if you saw this, I posted this like a month or two ago, but I was going through some paperwork, and I found, like, the stack, the stack is probably like two inches thick, of like my tape list from like McAdam, and, uh, See that, yeah. Mana, and, I don't and Mayfield, so it was like, I thought it was, because I had just been talking to, I think I had talk, been talking to Crispy about this, and I was saying, because he was going, he, he posted a list or a picture of the tape list of the guy that he's getting his stuff from now, and it's like six a six inch tape list, like no kidding. And I was saying that I went through this, and I said, you know, there was a guy that I used to get tapes from, and I said, and not just like, you know, all oh, here's Georgia 1982, his Mid South 1984. I said there was a guy who had tape lists, who listed all of his matches by minutes. And so instead of buying, like, a tape for, like, 20, you could, like, buy the tape for, like, 30 and customize it. You could put, like, 120 minutes worth of matches on one tape. And, like, that's in this list that I found. It was it was mana. So, like, here's the thing. It's like, this is... SWS 1991. Heart Foundation vs. Rockers, 17. Earthquake vs. Kataya, 9. DiBiase Haku vs. Kabushi and Ishikawa, 19. <coughs> so you just had to go through his entire tape list, add up to 120, and then you got your custom made tape. Which I was, <coughs> I was like, <coughs> this is worth the extra 10 bucks to get. Just the goal, because I think when I got from that from him then was, I think that's when I got the Flair Martel match from Japan, and then the Flair Martel tag match from the same tour. Because I was like, I had only read about this. Like yeah. you, you certainly wouldn't. <coughs> you certainly were never going to see pick, you know, anything video. But that's what got me about this, like the skydiving Super J, because it was only something that was it wasn't real. So it's like, because it's like, wait a second, these all guys with all these titles, and, and you ended up with Dragon with all these belts, Sasuke at the time with all these belts, like, look, like, 
damn, all right, I finally get to watch this, and they didn't at one time. They didn't have it. It's like you'll you'll like this. It's the the road to the Super J. So the the setup for it. Ah, fuck. All right, man, that was awesome because it was the first time I'd ever seen a roll through Boston Crab by Lance Storm. I love that move. I always he always did it with the single leg. I love the double leg. And seeing Naniwa and seeing Taka. Because, like, Taka, I remember seeing him from the game. Was the game out then? The PlayStation game? World? I think it was where he was, like, I forget. Remember they all had gimmick names, like, yeah. boss in it under the, the the names and all that? Like, so to see some of those guys, it was like, this is awesome. And then I immediately got the Super J tape, and it's like, all right, I'm good. Because that was the other thing, too, is we... There was a up Route 40 outside of Normandy. There was a place that had bootleg New Japan tapes. So, like, it, uh, the complete opposite of everybody else. Like, I was into New Japan, and plus the WCW, NWA stuff connection helped. So it was like I was familiar with that stuff. I never watched All Japan, and I wasn't a tape trader or anything like that. So, like, I never... It's not that it's lost on me, but I'll never have that connection to that era or like all Japan women or all Japan men. I'll never have that connection. Other people do. It's funny. I'm looking at one of these lists and it's like <coughs> one crazy deal. I will send you 20 tapes of my choice for a hundred dollars. These are my copies. I'm just running out of room. <laughs> awesome. I know. It's just like, and I was thinking, man, like, these tapes are, like, I think, like, McAdams tapes are, like, 20 bucks a piece or whatever. And I'm, like, I remember having to, like, carefully pick and choose, like, which three I could buy at any one time. Because that was, like, all the money I had when I was in college. And now I'm, like, I should have just bought all of these at the time. Well, that, yeah, in hindsight, like, I would have been a tape collector. Actually, it's better I wasn't because I never would have had a life. If, if I... <coughs> With newsletters, there was always something about them that I I couldn't invest in. I liked wrestling magazines more. There was like a level, like I know, for as much as I want to know about some of this stuff, I don't want to know it this bad. It like, And it just, like, I would listen to the radio shows. I would listen to Mancuso and Goodhart and Larry Katz on uh, WCBM. But, like, that was it. Every time I got samples of, of Keller or Meltzer or Beverly or anything, and I like Beverly, actually, the most out of everybody at the time, it was like, you know, Alan Raskin, all those guys. It was like I never – I got a kick out of it, but I was never I, – I just was never that way. And it was – I obviously was the, you know – the last of the Mohicans that way with just, you know, preferring newsletter magazines and not tape collecting and all that sort of stuff. And it's probably better. I didn't because I'd be broke. I mean, I never would have done anything. I loved it that much. I probably never would have done anything. Well, my problem was that I was like, I mean, it helps that I was studying pop culture so I could kind of get away with some of this stuff, but it's like, I had like the like whammy of like, not only collecting wrestling stuff, but, like, also buying comics and buying, you know, luckily I had pretty much given up on cards by then. But, you know, or movies. And so it was just like, you know, I had to, like, budget things only because I was spread so I was spread in so many different areas. And, yes, I was writing about it. And I sort of, at that point, at least thought I was probably going into academia so I could at least justify it in my head. Not necessarily, like, deductible wise but at least sort of investment wise 
But, you know, it's like I remember we were we were doing a um, – and this, this will segue us out of wrestling to, to get us on the way home because it's in the news. But so we were doing a ta- – we were doing a – we had a class in grad school on sitcoms. And our professor made the rule that for your final paper – you could do a sitcom, but it had to be one of the three networks, which was annoying. You mentally, this is so. This is 1994, okay? So we're like, so we can't do Fox, and she's like, no, because it hasn't really been a network that long, which is very annoying because I was studying metatext and self-referentiality. So naturally, I wanted to write a paper on The Simpsons because that's all this. I mean, The Simpsons is like nothing but references. So we couldn't. So I ended up doing my paper on F Troop. Rest in peace, Larry Storch. F Troop? Yes, F Troop. But here's the funny part. But I could um but I could at least find a handful of episodes like I don't know if it was on T V anywhere then. Nickelodeon maybe. Maybe. But like I at least could, I at least had, or you could buy videotapes, like some episodes, but not everything. But my friend in the class with me, who is a super Mel Brooks fan, he decided that he wanted to write his paper on when things were rotten. Kids, if you don't remember when things were rotten, Mel Brooks had a show in the early 1970s that was a parody of Robin Hood. Very similar, in fact, to Robin Hood, or Robin Hood Men in Tights. That he would make 20 years later. Similar, but uh, thematically similar, not necessarily everything. Because that was such a parody of the Costner movie. But anyway, so my friend decides he wants to, that's what he wants to write his paper on. Now, do you know what the odds are of finding episodes of that television show in 1994? Almost impossible. So what did we do? We went to this newfangled thing called the Internet. Um, kids, there were no websites yet. Websites hadn't been invented. This is the early era of the internet we're talking about. So, because we were all on Usenet, we went to recarts.tv.misc, miscellaneous, I think. And we were like, hey, does anybody have episodes of when things were rotten. And we found somebody that did. And they're like, well, what do you want to trade for it? And we're like, well, what are you into? And the guy's like, this, 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 no, no. I'm like, we have this, I have this, and my friend has this. And he's like, no. And then we're like, he's like, do you have any episodes of Mystery Science Theater? And I'm like, yes, I do. (laughs) I said, I have the Comedy Central episodes, and I have KTMA episodes, which were like the Holy Grail back then. And the guy's like, oh, I've been looking for those. So we got, my friend, all 13 episodes of When Things Are Rotten for like two tapes of MST KTMA episodes. And that's how he was able to write his paper. So not only do we have wrestling tape trading, and we have hockey fight tape trading, but we have niche nerd TV TV trading that went on back then. And, of course, you know, 
there was probably porn trading, but we're not going to talk about that because every technology of the late, of the 20th century usually involves pornography. But yeah, so we were actually trading TV shows. Damn. So kid, so when I hear these kids today, when I'm on somebody's stream and they're complaining about having to pirate stuff because they can't watch it, I'm like, kids. We used to have to go through so much trouble to f for stuff, whether it's books or TV show or wrestling. It wasn't like, oh, I'm mad. You know, you and I complain an awful lot sometimes about how little uh, Crockett stuff there is on the network. And why isn't this on there and why isn't that on there? But at least, you know, we may have it on YouTube and we may have it on tape trading. But, you know... We just we don't expect it. We're happy when we find it. It's like yeah. that's that's a, a lesson for the for the kids today. It's like it used to be if you wanted to watch an ep, you know if you missed it, if you missed an episode of Worldwide because you were playing football, you were SOL. It's like you hope next week you saw the highlights of whatever happened, but that was it. It was gone. It's like we didn't know that there was, you know, a guy in somewhere taping it that, you know, 35 years later we'd be able to get it on video, let alone watch it on YouTube. But, yeah, if you happen to miss the – if you were late coming home from school and you missed that episode of Star Trek, well, you know what? You were waiting 80 days to see it again until it came around in the syndication wheel. If, yeah. If you're lucky. That's why the TV Guide was so important to us and why we talk about TV Guide all the time. When you were in, when you were into a niche thing, whether it was nerdy sci-fi stuff or wrestling, you went through the TV Guide and you figured out what episodes were going to be on when. And if that episode of Star Trek, when they go back in time and save Joan Collins was on, you're going to make sure that you were home that day to watch it. Because you didn't know when you were going to get to see it again. Same with wrestling. That's why that's why you and I can still we still know what time and what channel stuff was on thirty five years ago. And as syndication grew and as the all the, the UHF channels and so many places grew, you would look at the T V guide and sometimes, oftentimes, you would just see a channel and it said wrestling sixty minutes. And most of the time, you knew what it was, whether it be Worldwide Wrestling coming on Channel 50 at 10 a.m. or whatever. But then you would get like, OK, wrestling. And then it would be randomly Power Pro Wrestling because uh, a new <coughs> UHF station has decided to run Power Pro because the other station has the UWF. And now all of a sudden you have that and maybe only lasts for a couple of weeks. But then you scan the TV guy and you go, wait, wait a second. <laughs> You know, what's this? And like and when the TV guide lied to you or when things changed, oh, that was cold. Well, I remember I remember that week in like early like in March 1986 thinking I was going to watch either WWF or Crockett and turning on whichever channel it was and suddenly Mid-South was on. And I remember calling my friend and I was like, "Are you watching this?" And he's like, "No." I said, like, I went to watch Worldwide, and it's not Worldwide, it's Mid-South. And he's like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, no. I'm like, 
I'm like, no, Ted DiBiase's on my TV right now. And that's, you know, that's how it happened. It was like, no warning. It was just, that's how it happened. Well, I still, yeah. I still remember when I got those TV guides and ISQ and I was like, I'm like, Mike, why does it say there's wrestling on PBS on this station in Virginia? Was there really, was there really wrestling on a PBS channel? I think you said it was Crockett, I think. But I was just like... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's something that I, if I'm going to at some point uh, before time runs out, I'm getting Gary Juster on the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast to talk about Channel 56 WNVC, a public television station that was not part of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, as is most television uh, that you have a local network like an MPT, Maryland Public Television, or something that controls the channels in the region. And then the, the Corporation of Public Broadcasting uh, doles out the money that they receive and grants and trusts and things like that. Channel 56 was if you have enough money and no one in the area is showing it and we can afford to buy it to put it on TV, we will. And that's what these crazy bastards did and these you know, there's some stories that are written up about them in the Washington Post from back in the day. And Tony Kornheiser talking about them because they were so important because in a time where you couldn't see NCAA first round, second round basketball, if you went to American University, George Washington, wherever, and they happened to be in the tournament, they somebody would if you funded them enough, they would buy the rights to the game, show the game. And when ESPN would go to commercials, they would just go back to these two guys in chairs. And these are the guys that Gary Juster came to to get the NWA and to get Crockett on the air and to get Georgia on the air in in, in the area. And that's exactly what happened. Georgia and Mid-Atlantic started out on 56 and then eventually on 54 in Baltimore. So they had a double connection that way. But until Channel 50 uh, stopped being or, or yeah, stopped being Super TV and went to a full time UHF, uh, syndic- you know, UHF sh- uh, channel. You know, it wasn't until then where Washington, D.C. had a super strong uh, NWA signal. And once that actually happened, that helped to change the game a little bit. And it certainly helped change wrestling viewership because there was wrestling on channel 50 every single day at six o'clock and multiple times on saturday that's one of the, it's one of those one of those great things about wrestling the history of wrestling tv just like you know certainly me and us here it's like we got to see world class because it was on a ptl station in pennsylvania and yeah. you know and it's so funny you know it's yeah. it's the wonder of you know of all the of all the promotions that would be on 700 club channels. It's, it's world class. It's like with its channel 43. Yeah, channel 43. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, I'm trying to think. Somebody else had TV. It's because 43 could be tricky because of 45 for me. But you know, when everything was just right, we would get 40. Because it was at 10 o'clock on Saturday. Am I am I hallucinating that? I can't remember. But I yeah, I do remember it being on there for sure. Well, see, I of course had the godsend. Because we live because we live in the country, we had a rotor on our antenna. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so that's probably how I was able to actually watch some Washington TV. I mean, 
I don't know if I necessarily watch stuff on 20 and 50, but I know, I mean, I remember watching, watching Redskin Report on Channel 4 Sunday mornings because of the rotor. Oh, man, that, that, if I, there was a lot that was not good uh, personally at that time, at that move into Howard County for a variety of different reasons of life reasons. But if there was any benefit to being trapped out there, you know, more towards the Glen L and out towards that area, it was country and there wasn't interference. So for a media horror, especially for me, again, being trapped almost there because there, there, everything was so far away and, you know, the sky was clear. So we got every single DC station, every single Baltimore station, then plus your, you know, coming in 25 out of Hagerstown or 43 or eight out of Lancaster, which always had a really good signal. So essentially we had three NBC affiliates where I was. No, I'm sorry, four because Hagerstown, Lancaster, Baltimore and Washington, whereas Salisbury didn't even have one. It had to share a channel with ABC, channel 47, because there are only two channels there, 16 and 47. So it's like, it's amazing. And then for us, 57, as you mentioned, because I remember seeing Brothers on there, uh, the Showtime show about the guys in Philadelphia they picked up. They would show NWA wrestling on there. I think the UWF was on there. You know, 16 out of Salisbury, just depending on how, you know, that was, that antenna, that good rotor antenna was big time clutch and we didn't have a very good one but it was good enough and for that and radio that area out there you know especially sports radio grew overnight man it was clutch well see yeah and like i said being equidistant between baltimore and philly means we got all the baltimore stations and all the philly stations plus eight and 43 plus dc if i'm lucky plus some jersey stations if I'm like, because I think one of the Jersey independents is what WMGM out of Atlantic City. I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure like a Jersey independent was how I saw ICW. Like I don't remember how many, and I know it was when it was when Les was hosting because I because I think that's the first time I remember seeing. I told Les I said this is the first time I remember seeing you on TV. I said it was in ICW like in the late '80s, and he's like, oh yeah, it was probably like. This time, this time, it was probably on this channel, this channel. And I'm like, I don't remember, but I know, because I don't think it was a Philly station, so it must have been a Jersey station. Or D.C., if you may have been 50, if you got 50, 50 had a really strong signal, nowhere near 54 out of Baltimore, but 50 would play, and that was the first time I saw Les. And, and to actually hear the Lion Sleeps Tonight be used as bumper music on the way out of breaks and things like that, it was, and it was, you know, at least, you know, when I saw it, it was... It ended up a rotating slot because obviously ICW wouldn't last and, you know, it would be different incarnations of ICW that would be on there. But there was one day where the AWA was all on all the time, you know, on a certain at a certain day, Mid-South for UWF was on all the time on, say, like Wednesday. Tuesday was a replay of Worldwide. But like Thursday or whatever it was, there was always a rotation where some group would come in and some group would go out. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Jersey. Like I said, I don't remember what it was. The thing that I, the other thing, the thing about 57 that I remember at the time was that like not only did they show world class, 
they showed the best of world class show. Yes. Which yes. was. <coughs> I remember cool because that's when I think I still have this on tape. Because remember that's when I saw the match that was Andre and the Iceman versus the Super Destroyers, which was weird to me because it was like, wait, why is Andre on this other channel from like two years ago with? You know, with these other guys, you know, like when I first started watching, it was very weird. Because it was like, again, it's one thing to to read about history. It's another thing to actually have a show where they show old clips. You know, because you certainly weren't going to get that on Vince's TV. For me, you know, when we when I would see that show, it's when we would come down to the shore and they ended up getting cable where my grandmother was at. And 57 would be one of them. And it was a good channel because, like, during the day, it would have, like, what's happening, and that's my mama. And there were all these, like, you know, old syndication, you know, comedy shows that would always fill up these UHF channels. But, yeah, I think that was the first time, I know it was the first time, I saw King Kong Bundy with hair. Messed me all up on those classic episodes. When they would show that, it's like, King Kong Bundy with hair. And did did they do it? I guess they did for a while on ESPN. They, they had that the legend show on or whatever they called it as well, too. But, yeah, I mean, that was that was really, really cool. 17 and 57. And again, unfortunately, because we got in all the Baltimore and Washington stations, we couldn't get in Channel 3, KYW and some of those other ones because of the power of the other two markets. Yeah, I just I remember that was. The other thing I remember from that show is, I think, was the... Uh, we mentioned it already, too. The David Von Erich, Jimmy Garvin, Precious, valet for a day, made for a day, whatever. Remember, I remember the skit of them having to wash David Von Erich's dog. Yes, after only seeing it in the pictures in the magazine, too, to see all that stuff, like him shooting the gun and all that, like, all that to actually see it. And Bill Mer- And the thing was, too, Bill Mercer was always there. Which was the other thing, too, and I just, I, Bill Mercer as a play-by-play guy was not good. Bill Mercer as a guy, like a color form that you take and you stick on the board of world class in any situation, whether it be, you know, Gary Hart in the middle of the street somewhere or wherever it would be, I just, I get a kick out of that. And thinking about those old episodes, to me, to, it to, reminds me of that. It's, it just gave me a kick right there. Well, to me, the weird thing was seeing Bill Mercer without his beard. Yes, and the or yeah, or when he had the Amish thing going with just the uh, the the Van Dyke or whatever you call it, just the goatee, no mustache. <laughs> That's that was the thing. It's like, yeah, especially starting to watch wrestling, I did not realize, like, oh, he's really not that. You know, it's like. He seems like a lot of territorial wrestling. This affable old guy seems like a nice guy, but really doesn't know what's going on. You know, because, you know, it's like when I started, wa- well, it's like once you get past only watching Vince's TV. But it's like I start watching, and it's like, okay, it's Crockett and Shivani, and it's Cottle and Weaver. And then I start seeing Bill Mercer. So it's like, you know, at least Bob Cottle generally knows what's going on. Bill Mercer doesn't really know what's going on. David Crockett. You know, so it wasn't until, like, you know, six months later and I suddenly get to watch Mid-South and it's like, oh, 
this is what TV's like when you have a really good announcer. True. You know, and then it wasn't, you know, and then it wasn't like another two years until I went to college that I got to see Lance. And it's like, oh, here's the affable old guy who doesn't really know the names of everything, but he's such a nice guy, this time it doesn't matter. It's like, he kind of knows the names, and it doesn't really, there it doesn't matter, Memphis, it doesn't matter that you don't know the names of everything. Yeah. But it's like, when you're watching, when you're watching World Class and like, Bill Mercer just does not know what to call things, or calls them wrong, or... Some you know it, it's like a he calls body slams pile drivers or vice versa and you're like, why is this the announcer? And you're like does he, it? And like is this like Vince? Does he does he is he the one that owns this? Is this why he's the announcer? Because that was yeah. a lot, the luxury of watching like the WBF is like, by the time I started watching, I knew I already knew that Vince was the guy that owned the company that he was the TV announcer. So I'm like, oh, I just figured that's how it works. It's like. You're in charge. You're the guy on TV because you need to tell everybody what's going on, which, you know, is is logically the way most places often have it. That, you know, either the play-by-play or one of the guys knows what's going on. I mean, obviously, not everybody can be Bill Watts and explain everything exactly as it needs to be explained. But it's better than just having like your generic guy on who doesn't know the names of stuff. And we didn't know at the time how much of an institution Bill Mercer was, you know, like calling baseball for the Rangers and calling Cowboys football and calling North Texas sports as like the voice of football. But like, we didn't know. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, when you're watching it, it's like, and I'm sure people got the same feeling if they didn't like Lance, which I it's impossible for those people to exist, but like the ones who don't like Bob Cottle, where they don't know that he was on Channel 5 forever and he was, you know, that guy and a program director in his own right. I don't think people even know that to this day, that they that he actually was a program director at, at WRAL. Like, it just, you know, they'll say it about Lance, but they don't say it about Bob. But the bottom line is, if you don't like Bob, none of that shit matters anyway. His local homely institution self, like if you don't like Rod Trongard, you know, same way. You know, if you hate, who cares how distinct his voice is? Who cares how this or that? He was a bad wrestling announcer. And one of the funny things about Bill Mercer was like, you couldn't even pine for the other guy because as much of a great of a guy as Mark Lawrence is, he was not, I mean, he had, he had nothing. Uh, you know, as far as he was the complete opposite of Jim Ross for the most part, the way Jim Ross could use his voice and use inflection and do also those sorts of things. Mark Lawrence couldn't, he could take it up to a point, but then at some point it's going to come back down again. And like, he just, he couldn't. And, you know, Bob, I think is underrated for a lot of people, but you know, if it came down to like Bob and Lance, it's like Lance's, could do everything Bob could do with more color panache and style and be involved in the bits where Bob, the most amazing part about him was you could light somebody on fire. Somebody could be eating glass. And that happened with Enforcer Luciano. And like, 
but like he's going to stand there and be unflappable. He would have guys try to break him all the time. It was impossible to. And that's he, but he was a pro. But Lance, I mean, the only one I'm taking Jim Ross first, but it's hard not to take Lance second. I, I loved what he brought to the table, and I loved what he was able to do with Dave Brown, you know, as well as obviously all of his interplay with everybody, which was, you know, masterful in some cases, like with Lawler. Well, I, again, it's a lot of what you – like I said, I started with the WWF, so obviously it's hard to – it's not hard to go up from Vince or Gorilla. That and, was... you know, so it's like, yeah, so you get Crockett. And, you know, it's another thing. It's like I don't know how long it was until, I, like, the first time I saw Gordon, you know, because I didn't – because, you know, I was too young for TBS. And so, like, the first time I saw him was either on these videotapes or – once pro wrestling this week started, I think I saw Garden Gordon first on. It was either Pro Wrestling USA or uh, it may have been. Oh man, because it, it wouldn't have been the Crockett shows, even though he hosted those uh, a little bit. It was Pro Wrestling USA, I think. And then he was it, the name was always everywhere and everything. And once you heard the voice, you never forgot it. But like when I get a chance to see him now, like. If you grew up in the seventies, like there was nobody else, and you watched that Florida stuff when the when the, when the promotion was great, like yeah, I'm sure Gordon Soley is the greatest announcer of all time. You believe that, and I can't take that away from you. But for me and my generation, you know, Tony, I thought Shivani, the way he came on, I thought he was always a little bit underrated. Uh, but Jim Ross was, you know the prodigal son of, of Bill Watts and just did an amazing job. And when you try to compare what Ross was as compa- compared to, to Gordon, which isn't fair to do. I mean, you know, Ross was Ross. I thank God I got to grow up with watching mid South UWF. And he became the guy that became, you know, the quote, the voice of wrestling, you know, thank God it was him. And I got a chance to see all of it because he is by far the best. And if I would have had to grow up with, Ed Whalen. And again, I know everybody likes their local guys, but man, guys like that, I, Dave McLean, you know, I still probably would have watched wrestling because I loved it and all, but God, there's some bad announcing. Well, to, you know, the little thing, and I don't know if this is Ross or Watts, but to me, the little thing of Ross always thanking people for watching the show, I thought was always a great touch. Thank you for letting us for inviting us into your homes or whatever. Of course, now I know that oh, it's because Ross was in charge of the TV, and like that's why like the TV is so important, and he's always thanking the various program directors and all this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It's yes, like, it's like a little thing, but but it meant me that sort of thing mattered though i i thought and i thought that was always a nice touch especially as you were growing your syndication you know which in hindsight you know i had no idea what it you know what it was but like when mid-south became uwf you knew things were changing this has gone on much longer than i was anticipating this is probably why you and i don't do the show that often because we actually cram like two or three shows into one I know, and I'm sorry, and I got to cut this one short. Just it's, and it's my fault, everybody, and I apologize about no, that. No, I mean I was starting to lose my voice like at least an hour ago, and I should have I should have been more diligent about wrapping up. But before you go, definitely let's talk about the Mid Atlantic podcast. I know 
that you are closing in a, on your week by week look of Mid Atlantic TV. You're you're on the road to Greensboro, and you will be at the final conflict probably not not that far into the future. Yeah, as we speak and and record this show right now, we are at the end of January 1983, and a bunch of items have gone missing from the locker room of Don Carnoodle and Sergeant Slaughter, Carnoodle's jacket, Slaughter's campaign cover, and as that is going on, Steamboat and Youngblood are also rubbing in the fact that they are not only learning Johnny Weaver's sleeper hold, but they're also learning how to break out of the Cobra clutch because they have a, a specialist helping them. Now, now I have to ask this one question: Were they calling? Yeah. Were they calling it the Weaver Lock then? They were not. Nope. Okay. It was Johnny Weaver's sleeper hold. And you know, funny, they they didn't really call him Buzzsaw Johnny Weaver in uh, Mid Atlantic much either. So at least at this point in time. So was the Weaver Lock an invention of one Virgil Riley Reynolds or? Did Johnny Weaver actually used to call it that back in the day? I don't think he, you know, maybe he did. I got to go back and look. I don't remember it being really referred to that way. Although, you know, growing up in, you know, the whole hero Matsuda thing and the spittle coming out, I'll never forget any of that, you know, watching that, watching it on Saturday and watching the replay on channel 50 during the week as well, too, of hero Matsuda choking out Johnny Weaver and basically putting to bed, uh, his Crockett lifespan, <laughs> you know, that was pretty much it for him after that in the feud between Dusty and Lex Luger that looked like it was going to retire Dusty for a very short period of time, too, until John Wayne had to, to come back a little bit quicker than anybody would have thought uh, after Starcade with Luger there and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I love doing that show, and I love doing the Twitter feed, and I love everything about Jim Crockett promotions and mid-Atlantic championship wrestling. It's what I grew up with. It's what I like talking about the most. It's what I like watching the most. It's what I like to go back and feel good inside of. We all need something warm and comfortable to give us a hug every once in a while in a world that is very cruel and in a wrestling world that doesn't give us what we want oftentimes. So to be able to go back into this and be able to turn back time to shut out everything that's happening everywhere else in the world not only of wrestling but in in the in all of society and take people back no matter how old they are whether they were born at this time watching at this time or whatever or not and making them the 12 year old the 10 year old the 14 year old the whatever it is and putting them back into that time and making them feel good about pro wrestling that's what it's all about and there is so much since 19 19- 33 at least the Jim Crockett promotions can offer. I'll never run out of material. We do the show mostly. We go week by week. We follow along with the WWE Network. We follow along with Peacock because it makes it easier for people to join us and listening to the shows, watching, understanding what we're talking about. But even if you're not a regular viewer on Peacock of these shows, you can still get great entertainment out of what we do on the podcast. We cut interviews. We give you context. We follow things up. We let you know what's going on. And I love doing it. If anybody wants to, please check it out on, on Mid-Atlantic, uh, at Mid-Atlantic Pod, on YouTube, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. 
we really Twitter is my thing the most. We do have all those other things as well, too. You can always check out shows on YouTube, but we want you to subscribe to whatever RSS feed that you get your podcast from. Go to Mid-Atlantic Pod if you want to download it directly, uh, part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So I love doing it. And, you know, this road to Greensboro with Steamboat and Youngblood has just been so fabulous. And I know there's a break in footage that airs on the WWE Network as we get into their next feud that they're going to be having with Jack and Jerry Briscoe as 1983 heats up and we have Harley Race and Ric Flair and all the stuff that goes on with Flair and Bob Orton and Dick Slater and Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine and all that sort of stuff. Um, unfortunately, there's a break, but what we do have is a lot of worldwide wrestling that's going to be coming into our show that we are going to be talking about as well as these Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling episodes. So if you're a fan of old-school wrestling... And I've done specials as well, too, Jim Crockett Jr., what we talked about earlier on with the Crockett Cup, all sorts of different specials, a three-part I did on, on on Don Carnoodle. They're on there as well, too. And as was mentioned at the beginning of the show, I also have a, um, a uh, Patreon set up as well, too, patreon.com slash Podcast. if you want to just... You know, throw tips. I, I do this because I love the history of it. I do it because I want to pass it on. I do it because I want to preserve it and conserve this history and be able to get it out there to new people. As you know, every day, you know, people pass, you know, things change, time moves on. I want to try to preserve this stuff and help out the best way I can as much as I possibly can. So that's what it's all about. If you want to throw some dollars at me, I would greatly appreciate it. Keep things moving. You know, it buys me time is what it does is it buys me time to create and to, to, to save and to buy things and, and to make sure that anything I can do to, can, to really help the history of pro wrestling and especially Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, you know, I, I want to be able to do. So please, if you get a chance, check out the Twitter, because if you're a wrestling fan, you're listening to this, I know you'd love it. Twitter.com slash Pod and the podcast. Just go to MidAtlanticPod.com to check out some episodes. I can't wait till you get to the part in 83 when we get to the Piper Valentine feud. I hope you're going to break out the aftermag where they explain the the damage done to Roddy Piper's ear with the diagrams and stuff. You know, I have not used noted psychiatrist Dr. Sidney M. Basil. I have not uh, used enough of his uh, discussion about some of these professional wrestlers uh, and some of his opinions on them. That's one thing I wanted to do, and I used to do more in earlier episodes, was go back to the After magazines. Uh, and I really, in the Weston magazine, I always try to give Bill After his credit here, that's the Weston magazines. I always try to go back to those, and I need to start doing that again because I love those magazines, and I know, you know, I know the pattern on when they come out, and I know what to look for. So I really need to incorporate some of that stuff back in the show a little bit more again. Well, it's a, I know some recently somebody asked, like the PWI Twitter about back issues, and I think, I think they said that they have whoever owns them now, like has stuff I think into the 90s maybe, and I was like, so I have no idea like where the Western era stuff like are there actually archive like official archives. You know, there certainly are places on the net where you can find 
old magazines you can get you know you can find them on ebay and then there's various places you can find scans and stuff but it's like it would be nice if there was an official repository of stuff because i know certainly when i was a kid and i was trying to buy back issues there would always be gaps and you'd be like oh why is this issue from like 1981 sold out and like we were talking about before in our age growing up if something was sold out it was gone it's like now, luckily with eBay, and you may find a scan of something, you can recapture it, but it was gone, it was gone. But yeah, I remember, you know, I think like I only went up to like the late, I think like the last, earliest after magazine I ended up buying were like from the late 70s, like some issues of Sports Review, I think from like when Billy Graham was champion. That was like as far back as I got, but, you know, that's certainly... A, I wouldn't want to necessarily pay eBay prices for, for after mags, but I would love if they had an official account where you could go back and read stuff digitally of of that era of stuff. I am so lucky. I filled in my gaps on Pro Wrestling Illustrated when I did because it was before the pandemic, and then shit went bananas, and now it's like it's gross what like people want per magazine and stuff like that. It's like, nah. <laughs> you know, at some point somebody's gonna die, and I'll be able to scoop up something somewhere. Well, I know. I think we th we talked about this before, but I think like two years. I think when I turned fifty, one of my presents to myself because I knew how rare it was, and I didn't know exactly. Like it was kind of expensive, but not unreasonably so. But it was like I finally got a copy of the Hodge issue of Sports Illustrated. I, yeah, I think yes. I think for like forty or fifty bucks. You know, which, and you know, is a lot of money, but in the overall scheme of things, really isn't. You know, and luckily it was before he passed away. I can't imagine what that probably is worth now. But, like, you know, after only hearing people talk about it, you know, and Ross talk about it or Coronet talk about it, and knowing the fact it's the only other time a wrestler was ever on Sports Illustrated besides the time Hogan was on. You know, plus there's actually some fun stuff in that issue besides just the stuff on Hodge. So, like, I'm glad that was, like, something I got when I got. And that's, you know, every time one has been listed for a price that I, you know, that wasn't gross, I it, I just, it, it hasn't worked out. And it's like, yeah, I won't have the money, or I just missed it, and it's like, oh, my God, how did I miss this? And that's one I'm going to get before I die because, again, I, I like, amateur wrestling and he is the he was always because i grew up liking amateur wrestling and my dad wrestling and me get into it it was the final it was the easiest knife to shove in somebody about that shit's fake and somebody that wants to like you know on the wrestling team or you always meet somebody who is a pure wrestler that like and it's like a uh, dude the trophy that we're going to go to college and go after is named after a pro wrestler f you <laughs> so i mean everything about danny hodge is like you know that's why i never want to hear more cornet stories about how danny hodge had the most well-heeled uh female fans uh of anywhere or anything like that i don't want to hear anything more about danny hodge there was another one too that robert fuller had about uh uh the whole the 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 sugar hole challenge with bob roop where he went down and he demanded, was it Bob Root? No, who was it? Do you know which one I'm talking about? 
was it Cowboy? He did it with somebody back when uh, uh, Fuller. Back, oh man, who was it? Help me, I'm brain locking. Which, where? In in Knoxville? Knoxville, he bought Knoxville. That, that's what it was. He was getting the territory off the ground in Knoxville. Well, they did. Well, they they had he had Gene Lewis doing the thousand dollar amateur challenge. That was it because then Gene Lewis had to leave the area after it, I believe, because Because he had a guy in there and the guy was taking cheap shots and Lewis was trying to sort of manage him. And the way Ron tells the story is Ron and Hodge are like watching this from like up in the crow's nest or whatever. And yes. Hodge is getting angry and angry and yelling, kill him, kill him, kill him. And then, like, and Hodge the- runs down to ringside and, like, basically says, if you don't shoot on this guy, I'm getting in there. And so, like, Gene Lewis had to. And then Hodge and Lewis both had to leave. And then, like, later, the like, Ron talked the guy out of suing or whatever, which was, you know, the the good thing, the end of the story. But... Yeah, it's like I could just imagine, you know, you, you being part of, like, the Mark Challenge, and then all of a sudden there's Danny Hodge on the ringside telling the, the guy to kill you. He's such a legend, and he you always hear about, you know, nice Danny Hodge and good guy, and, yeah, I'll crush your hand, but he'd rather crush the apple and have a good time and all that stuff. Like, there's a dark side to Danny Hodge because there's a dark side to us all. I don't ever want to hear or see any of that because – I can't imagine if that man were to black out and just go ham in the slaughterhouse, exactly the type of damage he could do. A true one-man wrecking machine. Again, it got beaten to death when the UFC started to get big and WWE was stagnant and you had those conversations and everybody would start off their interviews with the same way. If MMA was around now, what do you think you'd be doing? Like with Danny Hodge, there would be no question. He was Ken Shamrock way before there was a Ken Shamrock and a, and, and a lot better version of one as far as a wrestler, a boxer, and everything else. And yet he also wrote a cookbook. He did. You got to eat. Well, it's funny. I, I, I asked Ron once. I said, if, if you could take all the guys that worked for you in Knoxville and, like, there was a fight, for, like, the aliens came to Earth. And there was like a fight for your life, you know, who would you pick? And I'm like, I'm like, you, you know, you have Hodge and Lewis and all of these guys. And he's like, well, it's hard to argue against Danny Hodge, but you know, if like everything was on the line, I'd probably pick Dick Slater. (laughs) Like there's so many answers that he could give and none of them would be wrong. And he picked Dick Slater. As we as we talked about earlier, for as much damage as Hodge can do to you in so many ways, and he was so great in so many ways, when you have somebody as batshit insane as Dick Slater, who may not be as technically skilled, but is as tough, and sometimes again, sometimes like when, what do they say? Don't hit your head against the wall. Don't do that. Dick Slater's the wall. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, yeah. At, at any point, you know, again, the only one you would probably take out of that is Bob Roop, because as great as Bob Roop was at being able to hurt somebody if need be, he never had that streak. Or at least in hindsight, when he discusses and you hear about him, somebody getting out of a sugar hole challenge, it's only against Bob Roop. 
you know, uh, one of the rare cases, at least, where a finger wasn't bought, you know, bitten off. But, you know, he didn't have that kind of maniac instinct that possibly somebody like a Dick Slater, actually definitely something like a Dick Slater had, or even a Buzz Sawyer. It's like you could certainly imagine if Hodge could have gotten in some fights with college football players while he was at Oklahoma. But I don't know if he would have done to any of them what Dick Slater uh, allegedly did to John Matuzak. When he was in high school, Matuzak was in college and Slater was in high school, depending on which version of the story you hear. So it's, it's again, you know, everybody always says, you know, you would take Haku in a fight versus anybody. You know, I don't know if you'd, you know, Slater Slater would be on the, the top tier of that list, too. So, but again, wrestling, you know, wrestling is full of those guys, especially, you know, in this era we're talking about. We could, you know, we could list the top 64 guys you wouldn't want to fight in a bar fight, and number 64 is probably still a guy you wouldn't want to fight in a bar fight. Yeah, exactly. Blackjack Mulligan. You know, for any pro, Blackjack Mulligan will hit you when you're not looking, would probably, as you're coming out of your house, hit you from behind. Like, there's always everybody, it just like in your, your favorite fighting game, everybody's got their special. I mean, so, I mean, look, if, I mean, look, if, if number 64 on your list is Brian Hildebrand, that's still not somebody you want to mess with, even if he's six inches shorter and 100 pounds lighter. He, you know, he still know what to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you think of guys like you, we talked about Ivan Koloff earlier about like what, you know, people forget like how like he was big, he was strong. He had to deal with a lot. And you don't think of him as being able to defend himself, but there were times he had to defend himself, too. So it's like even the guys who you don't, you know, you don't, you know, there would be plenty you wouldn't put on a list. There would be some that would be no brainers and some would get left out, but like he's a great example of a guy who could do some real damage that you know <laughs> that would probably be left off most lists. Well, I remember there is a there is an after mag, or again, this is all this stuff is coalescing here. There is an after mag article about the Midnight Rockers, and I think this is before they're in the WBF, so this is like AWA or Memphis, and somebody's like, you know, these are like these two small guys, blah 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 blah. They're like. Well, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty are both like six whatever and two hundred and something pounds. So it's like these are the small guys in wrestling. But if you bump into them in a bar, you're still going to apologize. Yeah. Yes. I mean, again, you're, you know, it's like when people talk about football players and stuff like that. Even some of your smallest guys or the guys who look least impressive, they're pretty damn impressive when it gets right down to it. They don't look as impressive against some of these other guys. But they'll do damage on their own. Yeah, I mean, certainly, and you know, again, if you're a shooter, you don't have to be very big. You just you got to know what to do. Yeah, exa- exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, Mike, I want to thank you again for uh, for doing the show today. Everybody, check out uh, the Midlink Pod and all the other various things you do. I'm sure you know. We'll be back at some point. Hopefully it won't be this long a show in the future. But I, again, appreciate you taking the time uh, to do the show. Hey, I thank you very much for your patience and, you know, finally, you know, being able to get me on here. Unfortunately, my schedule is, you know, a little rough, and yours isn't the easiest to work with sometimes either. No, so, yeah. I understand. 
we will definitely do this again soon. And yeah, unfortunately, the only thing that's hurting me right now is I'm going to get yelled at by the wife here real, real soon if I don't go actually get her. So I got to go. But, you know, like I said, everybody, thank you. Or thanks for having me on. Thanks for keeping history alive on your show as well, too, and talking about, you know, hockey and some other different things as well, too. And, you know, hey, just everybody out there, support the Winter Palace, support the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, and you, you, you'll be good from there. And don't forget our other show that we're doing over at When It Was Cool, which is non-wrestling related. If you like spies or heists or uh, things like that, make sure to check out that pod over there and on our feed. Thanks again, Mike, and we'll talk to everybody next time.